Hey everyone, this is Cameron in the Edit. Just wanted to let you know that we have a couple content warnings for this episode. Uh, there's a fairly long-form discussion about uh, school shootings that happens throughout the introduction and the first chapter of this book. And uh, later on in the chapter that deals mainly with House of Leaves, we have a short discussion about suicide. So just letting you know that those things are in this episode. They're, the first one is longer and the second one is fairly brief, uh, but just letting you know what's up. Uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. We had a really good time with this book, and I'm going to let us get right to it. Welcome to Game Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic discipline of game studies, or at least the parts of it we've read. I'm Cameron Kunzelman. I'm Michael Lutz. This is episode 30. Woo, 3-0. The big 3-0. Um, I don't, there's not a lot of like cool references, you know, it's not like the nice number. Where, no. you know, you're like, oh, 30, and it's, you know, it's not like 42. We all know that's the cool number. Yeah. Thir- well. 30, if anything, is the number when you start being depressed about things. Oh, wow. We're in that part of the show. Yeah. Normally we wait for that in the last little bit of the show. Yeah. You know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so this episode, uh, it's episode 30, like I just said, and uh, it's on mixed realism. Video games and the violence of fiction. It's uh, by Timothy J. Welsh, who is currently associate professor at Loyola University, New Orleans. I don't know why that's a, that's a Winspear Hills for me. Uh, listen to that. Listen to how clean that comes out now. Winspear Hills. <laughs> years of practice. That's years of practice for you. It came out in 2016 from the University of Minnesota Press in the Electronic Mediation series. I think we can just dive right into it, right? Yeah. This is not maybe maybe this is something to say. We you know there what we have uncovered over the course of doing game studies study buddies is that there are several different ways to write a book. Mm-hmm. Just just imagine me, Michael, right now with my hand on my chin, just pondering out into into the wilds. There's several different types of ways to write a book. Uh huh. <laughs> Genres, one might even say. Mm-hmm. No, um, but uh, but there you know there are different ways of writing an academic book. Something that we've run into quite a bit over the course of the show is the kind of setup and, uh, I was going to say punchline, I don't really know, um, setup and case studies maybe, or theory and case studies mode, right? Which mm-hmm. is like, someone's working through what the big idea is, and then they have several case studies, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of work through that idea in different registers or whatever. Um, you know, we've read several books, in fact, this year that, that kind of operate on this model. Um, but that's not the only way to write an academic book, obviously, and I would not say that this book is written in that way. The, this this book seems to have, uh, you know, obviously the idea of mixed realism, but then each chapter really does develop that in different and in, in kind of odd sometimes ways, I think. Do mm-hmm. um, you think that's fair? Do you think, did you approach it a different way? Yeah, I, I had sort of the same thought that the well, what is interesting about this book, uh, at the start of it, at least, and I don't mean, like, at the start of the book, because it is like this throughout the whole thing, but sort of, uh, you know, the the pressy for this book, right, the sort of, like, uh, little elevator pitch, is that this is operating between literary study and game studies. 
So obviously this is one of the reasons why it came on the show because it's very pertinent uh, to me, right, in, in my research and things like that. And I think actually it ends up being pretty pertinent to you as well, Cameron. Uh, but I was interested in it precisely because it makes a claim, right? Like the back, like you read the back of the book um, and it is making a claim about uh, video games and fiction. And so it is not structured like a literary studies book. It is structured not even necessarily like a game studies book because it has like the introduction uh, and then kind of some sort of theory and method chapters. Um, and then there are the final two chapters, which I believe are called like case studies or something like that. Yeah, formally, I, I guess that maybe is a distinction here. Formally, yeah, it is kind of that way. The, the, the way that I didn't say it was, right? It does say part one, I think you have it in your notes, uh, history, theory, and methodology. And then part two is case studies. Yeah, um, so it's very interesting because it, it has visually that break breakdown, right? It has that kind of flavor to it. Uh, but that's not actually, so the, this is more common to, I think, for instance, the, uh, uh, the books that we've read that are sort of closer to kind of sociology have had this, uh, more consistently, I think, uh, like the mm -hmm. last book we did, for instance. Um, but, uh, here it's weird because the, the first part actually, because it ends up talking, I guess, about things almost like a literary studies book does, uh, where theory and methodology is not going to be necessarily uh, cleanly separated from your case studies, um, that feeling also persists here, right? That the, uh, the division that the book itself marks doesn't actually feel like much of a division. It mostly feels like we're getting... Uh, a development of the central idea of what mixed realism is and what we can do with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the, I guess it's the kind of thing where, you know, to, to kind of expand what I'm about to say out into a general method for reading, I don't think you can always take a book at its word mm -hmm. um, in a general sense. Right. And I, I hope the, that listeners of game study study bodies have kind of seen that across the board, but um, just because a book says it's doing one thing doesn't mean it's doing that thing. Um, and also sometimes it says it's not doing something where it is. Um, and I think that weirdly what's happening here is that this book is identifying its parts as being, you know, method and then uh, application. But I, I really don't see that at all. I really do see it as a central idea that gets defined and morphed across the book. I don't think that uh, mixed realism as a concept, and we'll, we'll talk about what that means in just a minute, um, I don't think that it means the same thing at the beginning of the book as it does at the end. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's to the, to the concept's strength. I, I think that it's doing something more than um, you know, just giving us application cases for the idea of mixed realism. I think it is showing how in different domains this idea works differently. I also think that depending on what your kind of proclivities are as a reader, you're going to take that differently. You're either going to think that's really interesting or <laughs> you're going to think that is, um, you know, not what you're in for, right? If you're looking for a tool that has a universal use case, right? If you're looking for the, uh, you know, the adjustable wrench of, of uh, video game reading ideas, I don't really think that mixed realism is, you know, the adjustable wrench. Um, I think it's something closer to, you know, a hammer in that you can use it in a lot of different ways, but there's probably one or two that are very appropriate. Um, and the others are, are kind of okay. So, you know, hammering nails, really good at it. 
Um, but uh, knocking bricks out of a wall, well, maybe you need a sledgehammer or maybe you need uh, a circular saw or maybe you need a concrete saw. Mm-hmm. I, you want, I can say some more tools too. Let's yeah, see. Yeah, let's, uh, uh, let's just switch over and do uh, Cameron's list of tools. Theme song okay. here. Yeah, uh, so uh, impact driver, um, uh, measuring tape, mm-hmm. uh, socket set, mm-hmm. uh one half inch socket, three quarter inch socket, one inch socket, one and one quarter inch socket. This is a great bit. I'm so glad we're doing this. It's great. I think it's very good. Um, <laughs> five eighths, of course. I uh, wouldn't want to forget it. Uh, but yeah, but that's all to say. You know, I think that. Um, I I think this is going to be a unique book for us to be talking about in a lot of different ways. And maybe we should just talk about the preface, which says the exact thing that I'm I'm basically. Uh, uh, replicating here yeah um <laughs> it's just a list of tools yeah <laughs> it's real is what i mean yeah. it's real conceptual mm-hmm. uh yeah so uh this book begins uh in the preface uh with kind of an admission that you may not get what you want out of it that is, I, like, I, I, the, that is, the, the preface is written by, by Welsh, who is the author, right? Uh, sort of saying, uh, he's actually, he's paraphrasing uh, one of the narrators of the novel House of Leaves, uh, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, sort of famously begins with this character saying, right, this, this book is not for you. Um, and he sort of echoes that sentiment. Uh, but whereas Johnny Truett means that because of... Uh, haunted house bullshit and we'll talk about that actually <laughs> later on um uh here uh the preface uh is, is sort of welsh talking about uh the the i mean in some ways right he's acknowledging the weirdness of his own project would you say that's fair yeah 100 yeah. percent. He, he, he basically says um you know, I set out to write one book, but as I wrote that book, I realized this is a big old idea I'm trying to, to you know, approach and the idea of mixed realism that he develops. And that uh, as he is writing the book, I think he realized that the possible use cases for this idea are vastly larger than the context in which he is using it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it, the preface is literally just like, Hey, I know that this could go in a lot of directions that I'm not accounting for, and I'm not trying to exhaust it because I think it might be impossible for one scholar to do. And so if you read this and, and you don't get what you want out of it, um, uh, sorry, mm-hmm. you know, that's just kind of what's up. Yeah. And, uh, that's, that's kind of it. Cause to say what it is, his project, or I guess at least how his project begins, right? I, I, he doesn't give us like the whole timeline of, of him in graduate school or anything. Uh, mm-hmm. But it seems like this project started with Welsh being interested in the ways that immersion. Uh, that's a fa- favorite word on this on this show. Everyone. We all love immersion, don't we, folks? We love to talk about immersion. 2020 has really been the year of immersion on Game Study Study Buddies. It's like completely on accident. It really has. Um but uh, he starts out uh, saying, you know, he, he wanted to talk about immersion and the way that the language of immersion is used with regard to video games, but also a- as kind of a interesting uh, comparison, how that lets that same language is used in literature. 
uh, because literature is also very often talked about, and, and in literary study, uh, is also talked about uh, as being sort of immersive in, in some way or another. And that's sort of where he wanted to start. Uh, that's where the, the mixed realism idea comes from. Uh, but then he found out, like, you know, I think uh, near the end of this book, uh, well, actually, to go to the title, right, it says something about, uh, what is it, the, the violence of fiction? Yeah, video games and the violence of fiction. Right, video games and the violence of fiction. At the end of this book, uh, one of the things that Welsh mentions is that, you know, the violence angle came in late too. It wasn't until his editor was looking at the manuscript that was like, you know, basically every one of your objects of study deals with like a scene of immense violence in some way. Uh, and so there is a real sense that uh, Welsh kind of stumbled onto an idea well i mean as he admits here right stumbled onto something and as he kept working with it it kept growing uh mm -hmm. and at a certain point he realized like i cannot really wrangle this whole thing and so i'm going to at front say if you came to this book expecting me to do something else with these terms um i'm sorry <laughs> that's just that's not how this project came together for me and i think that there are more applications than than uh you know i could possibly reasonably accomplish on my own yeah and i think probably one of those big it just you know even just reading the preface and kind of getting a sense of that i think one of them especially coming from the background that i do is that cinema also addresses these questions regularly right what what is the relationship between um me as a person sitting here and the thing i'm seeing on and through the screen mm -hmm. right like that that is a fundamental question of film studies and i you know obviously this book uh you know based on the preface and the introduction doesn't start there and i don't think it intended to go there um and i think that's what that preface is in some ways getting at is saying well why don't you care about xyz domain and he's saying look it's not that i don't care about it it's just that that's not what i'm writing about here mm -hmm. Um, you know, I wrote my notes. It's, it, not many books will open with a statement about a book's inadequacy to addressing some kind of problem. You know, that's <laughs> it's not a common thing. Um, but but I think in this case, it's actually really appropriate. And it doesn't feel I think there could be in some ways of listening to us talk about it where someone might think that it's kind of a cop out. Um, but I actually don't think it, I don't think it's a problem. I, I actually really like the idea that, you know, someone clearly says, I've come up with a big kind of philosophical concept. And I've I I have you know proclivities of where I want to see it go and I can't account for everything. Mm -hmm. I find that so much better than people being like, uh, and of course this can apply to literally everything on Earth. And I'm going to spend two paragraphs talking about all of these different media that mm -hmm. that obviously get touched by it. it there's a kind of um, uh, humbleness I think to this preface that that I find appropriate when you're doing work in big theory concepts. Mm -hmm. Well, do we, want to, do we want to talk about this big theory concept then? Yeah, sure. I mean, in order to talk about it, we need to talk about, you know, the paradox of virtuality first. But I think we can get there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, the introduction, which is helpfully enough called the paradox of virtuality, mm -hmm. uh, gives us some stuff that if you've listened to this show before, uh, probably sounds familiar, or if you've listened to kind of like any sort of cycle of pop culture commentary, you've heard some version of this. Uh, the idea of immersive media as dangerous in some way. Uh, and at this point, we know that, you know, uh, uh, movies were seen as as too immersive, right? People couldn't couldn't uh, distinguish between uh, the train coming directly at them or like the, a film of a train.
train coming directly at them versus like the actual thing. Uh, and even older than that, in my time period, right, the theater, the the early commercial theater in London was considered uh, very dangerous because it was so immersive to uh, people and it would lead them astray in, in all of these like religiously loaded ways. Uh the point being, you know, we we look at the history of sort of media production and the emergence of new media forms. The novel, of course, uh, comes out and, uh, you know, one of the sort of crowning achievements of the early novel is Cervantes's Don Quixote, which is all about a guy who reads too many novels. And then, you know, he, he reads too many novels about uh, uh, knights going on adventures. And so he decides he is going to become a knight and go on all of these, uh, you know, slapstick satirical adventures. So there's this long cultural uh, topos about the the medium, the new medium that uh, ensnares people in some way, right? It is for it, the the specifics of this will change, but it's kind of like the the intensity of this new media experience is dangerous because it threatens to override the user or reader or audience's connection to what is uh, assumed to be quote unquote the real world. So we've got mm -hmm. all that. Um, obviously, this leads right into video game violence debates. And one of the video games that is talked about in this introduction is a game called Super Columbine Massacre RPG uh, from 2005. And it is a game where you play as uh, the Columbine shooters and carry out the Columbine shooting. Uh, but it was made in RPG Maker, and it was made to be kind of a, uh, it was, you know, 2005, this is kind of the era of serious games. Uh, Ian Bogost uh, points out this game uh, as as uh, an interesting attempt at a kind of a serious game. Uh, so it's an RPG Maker game that you are walking around being uh, Harris and Klebold, and you're shooting your classmates, but you're doing it through, like, the abstraction of a, a JRPG, like, battle menu. And everything is, like, primitive, uh, little, like, Super NES-style sprites. And then after you've killed everyone in school, you go to hell. And in hell, there are Doom Demons, and you fight the Doom Demons because, of course, uh, Klebold and Harris also played Doom. And, you know, video game violence was... Uh, you know, a huge kind of component of the post-Columbine uh, kind of discourse about why did these kids do this, right, along with bullying and so on, and all, all of these other things. Um, but the video game aspect there is important because then uh, this game, whose creator's name I did not write down, I think his name is like Ledone or something? Yeah, it's something like that. Yeah. I can look it up. Anyway, he makes this game as kind of a uh, uh, an interrogation of the post-Columbine cultural discourse, uh, a sort of kind of satire slash uh, introspection. And, you know, obviously, like, in in this weird uh, adaptive way of, like, taking a school shooting that is tied to the genre of first-person shooters by way of Doom and then putting this through the kind of JRPG ringer, uh, you know, you, you uh, space out the the things that I think we assume uh, are at play when we talk about how immersive a video game can be. So in the case of a first-person shooter, like the speed, looking through someone's eyes, uh, turning your head back and forth, and so on. Uh, and we get a, an entirely different view of what a school shooting, uh, quote-unquote, would look like in a video game. Obviously, this game is controversial, even if it is intended, uh, you know, kind of, I guess, in, in good faith, uh, because... 
it is a game about an actual school shooting that happened. And there are people who, on the one hand, respond to this thing by saying, well, this is a bad, like, this is bad because uh, it is not sort of interfacing with the reality of the Columbine school shooting in a way that uh, fits the occasion, right? Like, the game is inadequate to actually, because it's got kind of this weird askance kind of uh, satirical view of the thing, um, it's not really paying due homage or like paying due respect to the people who, the, the real people who lost their lives there. So that's the one thing. On the other hand, and this is uh, sort of important, there is another shooting uh, not long after, um, I think this is the early 2000s at Dawson College, which is in Canada somewhere. Uh, but, uh, there's a Canadian school shooting and the person who committed that, uh, either for real or allegedly really liked Super Columbine Massacre RPG. And so this gets looped into the, the, like, ironically, despite being this weird JRPG, it gets looped back into the exact same position that Doom was in, which is that this is training you to do that thing, right? The mm -hmm. game is training you to commit this type of violence. And this... Uh, as Welsh says, is the paradox of virtuality. The, the, that video games uh, as uh, things that, that the, the term that he uses, right, uh, is virtualities. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit ex exactly of what's going on there. But media gen generated virtualities are things being cast up by these video games. And uh, on the one hand, video games are either inadequate to uh, correctly mediating reality in the case, so that's the case where it's just like this is not, you know, giving due respect. It doesn't have the quite uh, the right kind of like emotional uh, uh, orientation toward the material or something like that because it's a game. It cheapens it. Um, on the one hand, that's what games do, and on the other hand, somehow games are so good at mediating real world experience. They are so good at uh, sort of beaming uh, feelings or content into you uh, that playing them might as well just train you to be a school shooter, right? So that's mm -hmm. the paradox is that games are either extremely good at doing something or they're extremely bad at doing something. And whatever games, quote unquote games taken as a general form are, are understood uh, as doing, uh, it's going to depend on what is the context? How is the person forming this argument? What is their overall orientation toward games? And what 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 do they want to argue about the game? Uh, but either way, right, they're going to sort of toggle between these two positions. Yeah, absolutely. There, and I think what's kind of crucial here, right? In your formulation, you just did it as an or. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think what Welsh is pointing to is that part of the problem is that it's an and, mm -hmm. you know, that that it's a it's a double moral panic in that on one hand you know the the parents of uh people who were killed in the columbine school shooting uh they are saying this is trivialization and on the other hand people are saying this is reenactment mm -hmm. or or enactment in in the head right or in the mind um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it, it's not just that these are being, um, you know, kind of rhetorically used in different situations. It's basically in the exact same situation, both things are true at one time. And it just kind of depends on which one you pick to be true. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but, you know, they're not opposed at the end of the day, both of those people are, you know, both of those camps want to get rid of the game. Mm -hmm. It just kind of depends on like what flavor of getting rid of it you're choosing. 
Um, and so I think, you know, for Welsh, that's like the big problem of, of this immersion thing, right? Mm-hmm. I, you know, they're extremely effective uh, and they are garbage. You know, they don't mm-hmm. do anything at all. Um, and so what do you then do with video games as systems of representation if that's the case? Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's really like the the introduction. Uh, there's a little bit of he talks a little bit about uh, Peter Molyneux and Project uh, Natal uh, and the, the immersive fallacy uh, from Salen and Zimmerman, where he uh, the, and this is. Again, if you're someone who's listened to the podcast before, if you're someone who, you know, is in game circles, uh, the immersive fallacy is the idea that the object, the the aim of a game is to make the player forget that they're playing a game. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that is the, the idea of the, the immersive fallacy describes the kind of design philosophy uh, where you want the the like you are searching for this kind of impossibly transparent uh, connection between player and game. And of course, what Salen and Zimmerman are trying to get at there is that like by virtue of games being what they are, there is going to be some sort of, uh, you know, framing or mediatory apparatus uh, that means immersion in the fullest sense cannot happen. Mm hmm. Because for the most part, games require you to realize that you're playing a game in order to play them. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know the the you can't be fully immersed because the strategic or conceptual work that you have to do when you're playing a game is recognize the kind of relationships of rules with one another, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, in the same way that like. Uh, you know, if you're throwing a baseball, you know, you're not running every physics calculation in your head uh, mm-hmm. at the same time, right? Um, but that also means you can't play optimally, right? You know, the best uh, version of reality would be one in which I'm throwing the baseball and I can fully strategize my, like, physics calculations at the same time. Yeah, so if you were an angel, essentially. Yeah, right. would be if, sweet. If you were an, an angel and didn't have to do rational knowledge, you had totally intuitive knowledge. This is some sort of early modernism. Uh, I mean, yes. <laughs> I'm talking about uh, Pseudo-Dionysus, the Areopagite, Celestial Hierarchy. Um, but mm. anyway. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> um, this uh, this introduction has uh, one of my favorite pieces of writing that, that I've ever seen in a book. Uh-huh. It made me laugh out loud. It's on page eight. Um, so he's talking about Molyneux and Project Natal, right? And this idea that you're playing, uh, you know, showing people playing with this connect, basically, mm-hmm. and then uh, being in a pond in the in the game. And so this person is like doing, you know, all the movements in front of the camera, but ultimately in the game space, they're in the pond. Um, I'm just going to read this paragraph. Um, no matter how intuitive or natural gesture controls become, devices like Natal merely swap one interface for another, one mode of interactivity for another. Yet even on the leading edge of commercial gaming technology, the industry describes its products and aims no differently than the heralds of first-generation VR in the mid-1990s. Back then, Project Natal might have been said to have the potential for the, quote, virtual reality effect, uh, end quote, the, de- the quote, denial of the role of hardware and software, bits, pixels, and binary code in the production of what the user experiences as, uh, what the user experiences as unmediated presence, end quote. And this is the last <laughs> sentence on, in the paragraph. She's in that pond. As <laughs> <laughs> an exclamation point. She's in that pond. <laughs> I just love, I love that as a piece of academic yeah. writing. She's in that pond. She's in that pond. <laughs> She's in that pond. 
Um, but yeah, so, you know, basically just kind of the, this whole introduction is running through this kind of what, you know, what is happening when we say that someone is experiencing something through a video game and like, what are the stakes of that? And what are the ethics and things like that? And that eventually gets us to this key term, right? The, 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 the term that, um, a lot of the book rests on, you know, the title obviously is involved of mixed realism. Mm-hmm. This is on page 16 and it's quote, the capacity for virtual environments and virtual objects to situate their users within social material and ethical contexts. Mm-hmm. So the idea that, you know, in, in its most blown out version, right, the most expanded uh, version, it, mixed realism just is a, a word to describe what is happening when I sit in front of a game and have some sort of um, new social or material or ethical experience that is only afforded to me through that game. Um, so if I'm making, uh, you know, some sort of ethical choice in a game, um, and that makes me reflect on my own ethical relationship to the world. That's a moment where mixed realism is kicking in. Um, if I am, I, I don't know, playing uh, the uh, uh, what was the game that we played? Um, not Pandemic. Was it Pandemic that we played? Yeah, I, I think that, so. On the live stream. Yeah. Um, right, and we're making choices about you know how to manage a disease in in the game world, and we kind of blow that out to ways of thinking about h- how you manage other systemic processes. That's a moment of mixed realism, Mm -hmm. you know, how we make hard choices and things like that. It's very interesting for this to kind of get deployed and developed here without any or without with very little, I guess I should say, reference to Bogos procedural rhetoric, which is making similar arguments to this. Mm -hmm. Um, But but I also get the sense that I mean, I don't get the sense Welsh is after something else Mm -hmm. other than what what Bogos is. So I I understand why Um, that's not like the key comparative here. Well, uh, I would say, yeah, I think the the key thing about mixed realism is that it's ultimately about how do we reconcile or at least hold in tandem uh, kind of different frames of reference and evaluation in our head at the same time. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Which is slightly different from what I think is going on with procedural rhetoric, because, uh, yeah, it's I mean, mixed realism is all about uh, that division that I've already pointed out uh, that you followed up on between games are either like dangerously good at doing something or they're wholly inadequate to doing something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the solution then, right, is like maybe games are really good at some things and not good at other things. And when we go into gaming experiences, we're actually aware of this and we evaluate our experiences as gamers accordingly. Yeah, I mean, it's th- this is kind of a it, it's weird because the book is not flagging it this way. Right. But it's kind of a mode of game reception mm-hmm. or, you know, a theory of game reception. How do ways of thinking you know maybe in other terms what we might call ideologies right how do uh ideologies afforded by game spaces game ideas game mechanics how do those come into conversation with the ideologies we have before we sit down to play that game mm-hmm. um unfor- you know i i think that's the most powerful part of this argument i would say unfortunately that's really not where this book goes no um, because this book is ultimately, after this point, a a book, as, as you said at the beginning, a book that is really concerned about what 
what alliances lie between mixed realism, like these concepts of kind of indeterminacy between the, the, the fictional world and the world that we're in or, or our experience in the game world and our experience in our own heads in the real world. It's interested in how books and video games both access that kind of ecology or circuit of logic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's interested in kind of playing out the idea of mixed realism in a in some fairly delimited spaces that, that I think ultimately um, don't give me as much, you know, to kind of grab onto as I would like. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, with with that on the table, do you want to tell us about part one in the first chapter? Yeah, so, uh, you know, there's part one, part two. Um, part one has four chapters in it, I think. Is that true? I think so. Um, I think you did a better job of marking out those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's got five. The first mm-hmm. five chapters are are in the uh, in the thing. And they're kind of, like I said, you know, they're, they're, they are labeled as methods chapters, but I don't necessarily agree with that labeling. Um, Michael, you've already used the word virtuality several times mm-hmm. and the word virtuality is used a lot in this book um mm-hmm. we, we have definitely undersold how, how much the word uh, uh virtuality is used and at the very beginning of chapter one we get a uh, explanation of virtuality because all of chapter one is dedicated to trying to figure out where where immersion this concept of immersion was in the 1990s um welsh is drawing a pretty direct relationship between um, the pre-dot-com crash and ways of thinking about the potential of being immersed in a game space. So Welsh is talking about uh, VR in the 1990s, is talking about some of the fictions of the 1990s, like The Matrix, for example, that kind of has a theory of fully immersive um, you know, media. So in, in The Matrix, you jack into The Matrix, and that is all the sum total of your experiences. Um, and then, uh, then works through like a theory of new journalism. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, you know, Michael, you might have to explain that because <laughs> I, I would not say I am an expert on new journalism beyond, uh, you know, having a kind of gloss on it. But to go back really briefly to virtuality, virtuality is used all over this book. And I, you know, I sent you a message when we started reading, Michael, where I was like, I don't know what virtuality means. Like, even a little bit, I don't know what virtuality means. And we get kind of a definition here. Um, Welsh seems to align with Theodore Nelson's definition. Um, which is that uh, virtuality or the virtual is the opposite of the real. Mm-hmm. And so when uh, Welsh is talking about how games offer us virtualities, which is kind of the, the formulation that virtuality shows up the most in in this book, when he says that games uh, you know, offer up virtualities, what, what Welsh seems to be saying to me is that games offer up potential fictions or or locations or situations um, in which you get to place yourself and then, I don't know, generate a system of empathy or uh, relationality with that, with that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, like, and, and as you know, listeners, as you can hear me having a little bit of hesitation in my voice and a little bit of a difficulty describing it, it's because I have finished this book and I'm still pretty confused uh, as to what virtuality as a concept is. It really just seems to be something that is not real. Uh, which is very different from my understanding of the term virtual and the way that what you know my kind of philosophical trajectory gives me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Michael, do you have a better sense of what this is? Um, well, uh, 
Not much better, I think, than you, uh, but I will say that I think that you are correct. Uh, the, the term that I used a little bit ago was the phrase media-generated virtualities, because mm -hmm. that comes up a lot, and it seems to be Welsh's way of saying that. So, for example, when I approach a book and I can imagine the, the world, right, the fictional world that is projected by that book, and I don't mean that even necessarily in the way that, like, uh, you know, Tolkien's work goes through a massive amount of uh, detail in order to uh, project the world of Middle-earth. It doesn't even have to be that. It can be something as, uh, you know, as, as quaint as a, as a normal realist novel. If I'm going to approach a novel as in some way uh, projecting a world with characters in it and characters doing things... Uh, that is in some way similar to what I do when I am playing a video game and I'm imagining the world that it is projecting and presumably it would be the same for film. Uh, like, so when we have media-generated virtualities, the claim seems to be that all, or maybe most, media objects in some way uh, project a space of possibility, of alternative, uh, uh, of some way, well... It, of some way that in potential right could reframe our experience of the non-virtual uh the one of the terms that uh welsh uses is everting right instead of inverting like the thing that is inside like verts outward and and uh becomes inscribed upon sort of the, the space exterior to it uh mm -hmm. so um i'm trying to think of a really good quick example of this i mean it's it's just it becomes a way of talking about media effects, really, in some way. Um, and mm -hmm. I, and I, to some extent, I think that might be underselling what Welsh is getting at. But absolutely, this incorporates what we normally call media effects, because that is that is really from the the violence and Columbine and everything. This is really the 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 knot of issues that we're tangling with here. Yeah, what are the what is the capability for a fictional thing to have an impact on a human mind? Exactly, and uh, and this is put in a different way somewhere later that we may get to, but um, is very useful to me because this is precisely like the problematic of the early modern theater, right? The people who are saying the in in early modernity, the the anti theatricalists, the people who are saying that the theater is morally reprehensible. Uh, their argument is that when you go to a play, you are seeing things that did not happen, uh, but you are having authentic emotional responses to it. And that is dangerous because you are, uh, you know, you're you're feeling sorrow for life that was never lived or you're laughing at punishments uh, that were never truly given or things like that. Um, and so this is all to say that I think Welsh is on to something. I think that there is a long history of of maybe mixed realism or some kind of anxiety of, about uh, what immersion is that is really relevant here. Um, but as, as sort of you say, you know, I think like, well, who, whose virtuality is this? And I think like you sort of, you know, Deleuzian virtuality or something, um, which doesn't need to be here. But I do feel like a lot of, there is a lot talked about in this book, but the sort of theoretical or methodological affiliations that Welsh has end up being end up being pretty unclear to me. Yeah, I you know, I this this is such a uh, I feel like a me thing to say, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I just think there need to be more theory. 
Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm sitting with my pipe in my easy chair and uh, rubbing my elbow patches and saying, <laughs> oh, I think there just needed to be more theory here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, but yeah, I mean, as you're saying, I think that I would have an easier time understanding the kind of ethical or conceptual stakes here and then understanding a little bit better about the application of these ideas if I knew you know, the other theories that are being aligned with, which is not to say that there aren't here. In this chapter in particular, uh, Catherine Hales's work is uh, being, um, uh, you know, kind of specifically called out, especially her work on virtuality and then the materiality of virtuality, meaning that um, all kind of fictions or all kind of potentials that we engage with, they ultimately are grounded in the material connections of both the human body, but also the kind of material substrates underneath uh, computation, mm-hmm. you know, so there's computers in the world and they do stuff. Um, and that, you know, that's kind of part of Hales's big project. But at the same time, it's hard to read this and not think about the other parts of Hales's project, uh, which are more broadly philosophical and which engage with the idea of where in that material and what are the mechanisms through which that material gets augmented by the virtual, right? I mean, that's what obviously her most recent book came out uh, since this book, but that's been dotted throughout her kind of scholarship over the years. And I think the, the her more, more recent work on that is just a sharpening of it rather than some sort of new theory. Um, and so I, weirdly enough, I think Welsh's resistance to kind of going to big theory claims or aligning himself, uh, you know, more strongly either with Hales or more strongly with uh, broader schools of philosophy. Um, it, it just uh, made it very hard for me to get a sense of like what all the edges of virtuality are, right? What does it talk about? What does it address? What does it not? Um, I mean, I guess another big line of alliance or personal alliance here is uh, Mark Hansen's work, but similarly, I think that it is cited in such a gestural way rather than as a kind of philosophical system that I don't really have a sense of what parts of Hansen are being fully adopted here or what parts of Hales are being fully adopted here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's kind of, for me, it's like theory often in philosophy often does the work for me in a book of allowing me to understand what are the baseline conceptual, you know, ontological and methodological claims that are being made that support the theory in the book, right? What What is the bones that holds this body up? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what the bones of this book are. And as we go further through this, I, I think that's going to become more and more of a problem for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I agree, and we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to it. Uh, but just to sort of tie off this chapter then, uh, so that mixed realism we've talked about is precisely kind of what I gestured at earlier. Uh, and I think this is really clever actually, uh, that mixed realism is basically the idea that when we are engaging with a media object, whatever virtualities it's generating and however we choose to describe virtualities or define them, um, whenever this is happening, we can in fact hold multiple types of realism in our heads at at the same moment and use those to interact with things. Uh, And the Mm -hmm. way that uh, Welsh gets there is you already mentioned he talks about the matrix and the matrix of course is like the fantasy of total immersion. Like the, you know, you plug the thing into your brainstem and all of the information being piped into your brain like overwrites whatever input your brain might be receiving from your body. 
um, like just that total, just totally like sort of jumps the turnstile there. And uh, what your brain is giving you as like sense experience has been totally overwritten. Uh, that's the fantasy of kind of like technological immersion. Uh, but one of the things that Welsh is wanting to point out is that literature, uh, which has sort of historically been talked about in terms of, of immersion, and also in the early 90s uh, at this time, it's not just showing up, like VR is not just showing up in uh, actual tech sectors and speculation about tech sectors, but we are seeing the the dot-com boom and sort of the techno-optimism of that starting to influence literary theory. And sort of his key example here is uh, Murray's Hamlet on the Holodeck, mm -hmm. which is in many ways predicated on this idea that uh, new technologies are going to make more immersive stories. Uh, and of course, that was, you know, part of um, Murray's argument in that book was that, of course, this is going to happen because literature is on its own already so immersive. What Welsh does that I think is really neat is he sort of like slides in. And he's like, but here's the thing. Literature achieves immersion through language. And language does not achieve immersion in the same way that a video game does or some some other type of uh, visual storytelling might. Uh, so there is a type of realism that holds for literature, for reading, for, uh, uh, you know, language. And then there's another type of realism that holds for whatever our, our game state or game space might be. And in fact, we can sort of hold those two realisms together when we're evaluating media objects. And, and I think that gets us some interesting places. Uh, but first, he wants to trace kind of a prehistory here. And this is how we get into Tom Wolfe and the new journalism uh, uh, I'm just going to give a very brief gloss on the new journalism. I know that you passed this to me, Cameron, and I'm probably not going to be much more helpful. But new journalism is just, uh, uh, you know, Tom Wolfe, who died a couple of years ago, comes around in like the 60s uh, and says like, hey, what if we started writing journalism? Uh, but instead of making it very sort of like dry and objective, uh, we incorporated literary technique, right? Narrative voice and foreshadowing and metaphor and simile and, and made it more uh, sort of enlivened in that way. And one of the big examples of the new journalism uh, is Truman Capote's novel or nonfiction novel In Cold Blood. Uh, which you'll notice I called it a nonfiction novel, which sounds like a contradiction in terms, but that's what he called it. That's what it is sort of marketed as, because it is a true crime story of the actual uh, murder of a family in a, a small town in Kansas, which then uh, Capote comes in and he's kind of like doing the sort of normal true crime thing. But where this book differs from being like a true crime, true crime write-up of like factual here's what happened here's what happened here's what happened is that his voice is always he writes it as if it were a novel right he he uh is always quoting characters but like his descriptions of things is it's as if you're reading a scene in a novel not reading a report of a true event and this takes us into the the second chapter, which is called Reading in Cold Blood Today, Toward a Model of Mixed Realism. Uh, but before I get into that, was there anything you wanted to add about that uh, other chapter? Nope. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, basically, In Cold Blood is what I just described. Uh, it is exactly uh, what I... Uh, if you've seen the film Capote uh, with Philip Seymour Hoffman as, Tru uh, as Truman Capote... This is th that movie is about the process of writing this book. 
uh, because what happens is Capote hears about it. He reads a very brief news story and he's like, I'm going to write a nonfiction novel based on this entire family being murdered during a home uh, break in. And he goes off to Kansas and he interviews everyone around the town, which is uh, it's a small farming community called Holcomb. Um, and he uh, ends up interviewing the murderers themselves who are eventually caught. And he develops a kind of uh, the, the film Capote is about like the weird relationship he develops because he is essentially like getting these men on death row to tell him his their life stories. Uh, and there's clearly like questions of sort of the ethics of him as an author and as a creator doing this. Uh, but then he he puts it all together into this book, In Cold Blood. It's a huge bestseller, very famous. And uh, the interesting way that Welsh reads it is that uh, the so the critique that you can make is that you will read uh, In Cold Blood and Truman Capote doesn't show up at all as a character. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is it is presented as the the sort of like description from nowhere of the events that lead up to the murder, the murder, the, the murder itself or the murders themselves um, and sort of the aftermath. But it's never it never gets to the point where it's like and then this like fancy writer fella from New York came and started asking all these people questions. Uh, the, the book acts as if Truman Capote himself does not exist. Mm-hmm. And this yeah. is. This is one of the ways uh, or this is one of the critiques that gets leveraged of him and the book uh, and sort of his relationship, especially with um, um, the murderers, uh, is that kind of uh, erasure of himself. Right. Like, what is he up to? Like, why is he not sort of uh, highlighting his presence? The fact that he is uh, putting to get like he, he is putting this narrative together. Right. He is structuring it literally as the author. And his response always was like, oh, no, like, this is all true, right? But people are asking him questions about, like, well, you weren't there in this scene, and this girl is dead, so how do you know what she said? And his response is always something like, well, someone else was there, and they heard her say that, and they told me she said that, and so I put it in the book. Uh, That is its own kind of thing. Uh, And then what I really like, what, what Welsh does, is he points out, well, listen, the way that Capote uh, puts in like his direct quotes from his sources are out of time with the narrative as you are reading it. So even though this narrative is basically totally chronological as a novel, uh, the, the when the character it'll it'll you know say something like character so and so did this did that did that and then did that, uh, and then it'll be like character so and so later said. Or often said, and then he'll put in a long quotation from one of his interviews. Uh, and what what Welsh points out is that precisely because of uh, that little change in time, right? I have described to you the scene that is happening in the narrative. Later, without me really saying it was later, the character said something else or someone else observed this. Uh, we get forced into Capote's position as someone who has to reassemble all of these details and kind of like line them up. And so the reader gets put into uh, this kind of mindset of recognizing like, oh, I am assembling this story. Like, I can see how Capote has assembled this story. 
Therefore, I could also assemble this story, or I am helping him assemble it. And if I wanted to, I could choose to uh, interpret some assumption he's made differently or some piece of evidence differently, that there might be a, a, a way in which this is being presented to me that I don't necessarily have to agree with, right? There are two types of realism working here. One is kind of like the realism of the object, Capote's realism, uh, but then there is also sort of... Uh, the realism of my circumstance as a reader who is uh, activating the content of this novel, right? Who is processing, processing it and, and making something of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, in, in that is, I mean, that's like the mixed realism part of it too, but that's also a way of talking about the kind of ethical or social relationship that, that he's trying to get at with mixed realism. Mm -hmm. Um, and for him, right, that, that gets mediated or, or that gets a, kind of theoretically addressed through the concept of ontology, which kind of leads to a big question that I have of this chapter. And I think a big question I have throughout the rest of the book. So this is on page 35. He says, the immersed, oof, if only I, I can say it. I'm so I'm choked up about it. The immersiveness of markedly distinct media, both print and digital, was thereby understood as a function of their ability to avoid signaling ontological discrepancies between the projected worlds and the real one. Mm -hmm. End quote. Right. And so in the, in the context of Capote or, or not, not <laughs> I'm also talking about the film now yeah. uh, in the context of in cold blood. Right. That that is accomplished by that kind of out of jointness that you're talking about of time. Um, you know, he's talking about that specific section, apparently, in the book. I have not read in cold blood, but <laughs> really. Um, yeah, no, no, I've seen the movie Capote like 15 times, but just I, I'm just going to mention this very briefly. Uh, I this was a very strange experience because very often I come to any books, but especially books here um, for this podcast where like, for instance, they'll talk about games that I haven't played. I have somehow played every game in this book with the exception of Super Columbine Massacre or whatever. Um, but I have also read every single book that gets talked about. <laughs> It's just for you, right? This is this is your uh, that hole in the mountain from that Junji Ito comic. Yeah, <laughs> just for you, <laughs> uh, the uh, Amagara Fault. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I've played Super Combine Massacre RPG, um, but uh, not all of the games, and certainly have not read all these novels. Um, but uh, anyway, sorry. No, no, no. Uh, but yeah, but this kind of thing, right, where the, the book e in its experience of it, right, I, I think what's important is that if you stop to think about the novel, and this is kind of what Welsh is saying, if you stop to think about the novel, it's very troubling, not in like the ethical sense, but like the way all these things fit together. But if you just take it as it is, right, if you are quote unquote immersed in it, then it makes sense for someone to, uh, for Truman Capote to have 100% access to someone sitting on uh, like some porch steps in Mexico thinking about their entire history of their life, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, from birth until that moment and then going back to like the time of the novel. Right. Mm -hmm. So are all these weird things that happen. Um, and, and for me, you know, especially within the relationship of games, right, I think this is where some of the theoretical fast and looseness uh, loses me in some ways, because I don't know if. Uh, understanding the understanding the distinction between media and the quote unquote real world, right, or like the physical world that you and I are sitting in right now, and the world inside of the game. I don't know if I think that is an ontological distinction. 
Um, is that a phenomenological distinction? You know, is it a sense of uh, of the experience of the thing? Is it an, an epistemological question? Mm-hmm. Do do the ways that we come to know the world are they different, or the mechanisms or the the modes through which we know the world are those fundamentally different when it comes to a game and how we come to knowledge? Is that different, or is it you know ontology being? Is it at the level of existence that those things are different? I don't think that playing a game, and you know, this is something, this is a little preview for my own book that I'm writing, hopefully out in 2021, but I don't think that anything in a game is ontologically distinct from me and the world, meaning we are not different at the level of existence. Um, But if you make, you know, if you make these things, um, these kind of claims about ontology, in, in a book, I think that you are kind of required to back up, back that up with a theory of ontology. Mm-hmm. What is the digital world, right? What are virtualities? If they're ontologically distinct for Welsh, then what is the ontological distinction? What is different about the being of a video game world uh, or different about the being of a virtual space that is different about the being of me embodied in the physical world that I exist in? And without that kind of distinction, without either a system or a description of what is the difference that makes a difference— then I don't know what to do with what it means for those things to be ontologically distinct. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's kind of a claim without any stakes for me in that, sure, they can be distinct or not without a theory of ontology, without a description of the being of these things. I don't know what to do with it. You know, it, 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 at this point for me, and I, and I want to be clear, I, I like this book. I think it is addressing lots of questions that I, I find really interesting about my own kind of relationship to games and, and the way that I think about games. But but the way that ontology and, and these kind of theory terms get deployed in this book is sometimes like if you just said, well, this is cheese and this is not cheese. You know, I'm pointing at a computer. I'm like, cheese. And I point at like my shoes and I say, not cheese, right? Mm-hmm. Like there are distinctions and they are terminological for sure, but I don't know what why it matters mm-hmm. um, if that thing is one thing and the other thing isn't. And th- I really thought that the, that this chapter two or chapter three would allow me to dig into that and kind of figure out those distinctions. But I I am not able to kind of uh, backfill or kind of from its pieces assemble the broad theory here. Um, And that's unfortunate because like I said, I do like the book and I like the arguments being made, but I don't really understand why they work or how they work. Yeah, no, it's, it's very strange because like, the attitude that this book has toward immersion, I really like. Mm-hmm. Like the 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 sort of critique that it is leveling about immersion and the way that we talk about immersion is like 100% like I am on board. This is like, thank God someone is saying this because I don't have to now, right? Um, or at least I can like point to like, I can quote some things when I'm, when mm-hmm. I'm making these claims. Um, but yeah, the like what you just said about ontology, and I figured actually you would have gone on this tear earlier back at the end of like the two chapters ago where he says that uh mixed or what was it the all mediated generated generated virtuality share the structure of an aesthetic object yeah and 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 like that uh it is about ontology giving way to aesthetics like yes. there is so much like dude dude what like that's <laughs> that's that's the introduction it is the only time that aesthetics really get dug into and there is just there is so much there is so much you could say about the like 
what it means for ontology to give way to aesthetics. Like, I so want to read that book also. <laughs> but yeah. but we don't get it. We don't get it. And it is a huge claim. <laughs> um, uh, yes. Oh, goodness. It, it is, that's a claim that's on the level of, like, uh, you know, Deleuze and uh, Guattari saying that there is no representation. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's that level of, like, oh, my God, what? What are you talking about? That's amazing. And then, yeah, it's not, not like I said, it's kind of not paid off in a way. And, you know, I'm not calling for, like, a full-on, you know, Kaleha-style, um, uh, you know, systematization of the whole world. But I just, I really would have uh, liked a little bit more... Um, and that becomes more pronounced for me in, in chapter three, um, unless you have more you want to say about In Cold Blood. No, In Cold Blood is uh, basically basically settled for now. So tell us about chapter three. Chapter three is uh, kind of digging into the, it is reconstructing a lot of the debates in video game studies around these issues, basically. So if chapter one and two were trying to figure out, you know, if chapter one's about figuring out, well, where does this fit into a kind of cultural narrative about immersion? And chapter two is where does this, where does mixed realism fit into uh, literary study, right? How does this have an impact or a use when we're talking about, um, you know, uh, literary depictions of this kind of stuff? Then chapter three is figuring out where this argument is situated within game studies and, and in particular in like how we think that representation works, I guess, in games. Mm -hmm. uh, it opens with this really interesting um, uh, <laughs> idea or concept or whatever about Super Mario 64, mm -hmm. um, which has a weird thing when it comes to its camera. Right, so it's, this is a 3D Mario game. It's the first 3D Mario game. I had to like check myself there, but it's the first 3D Mario game, and it it dramatizes the act of controlling the camera with its narrative, meaning mm -hmm. that you control Mario and he's bebopping all around and butt stomping stuff or whatever, and but he's also got uh, the Lockatu brothers who are uh, his camera camera men, I guess. Mm -hmm. They're brothers. Uh, his his uh, cameramen who are flying around in the sky and following him, right? Mm -hmm. And in the manual, I guess, and maybe in the game proper, the game explicitly says, hey, you use these controllies to, to make Mario butt stomp, but then you can also use the like, little uh, N64 yellow buttons to move the Lockatu brothers, which moves the camera. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, 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 Welsh says, okay, this presents like kind of a problem. Right. Because it's it's saying that the way that we access the world and the way that we act in the world are two different things, that these things are uh, incomplete with one another, mm -hmm. um, that they don't quite fit together too well because it uh, causes a kind of disjuncture between cinematography and a disjuncture. Or it, well, it, sorry, it causes a disjuncture juncture between the control of the camera and cinematography and the control of a character, Mario. Mm -hmm. This this is where, by the way, that film studies is very helpful because we have, uh, you know, since the French New Wave, a lot of theorizations of what it means for the invisible style of <laughs> cinema to go away in the same way that this is getting rid of the quote unquote invisible style of video game cameras. So, you know, um, you know, Agnes Varda, Cinema Verite, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we can we can uh, take our pick here. But there's a lot, a lot of work in cinema around this these issues and a lot of a lot of filmmakers who were just known for making this kind of thing. Um, but uh, he uses this as kind of a, a stepping stone to work through um, 
video game studies and how they have established what is real or not. You know, what what is the authentic um, uh, at, at its core? What is the real thing in the game? Mm-hmm. Right. Is it the representation or is it the system that you are operating mm-hmm. um so is it the rules through which i'm operating mario is it the rules through which i'm ma- moving the camera is it the camera representing uh is it the camera fo- following mario what is the, kind of the core fundament here and he, he kind of blows it up beyond just that example um is that is that kind of i mean that's basically what the mario example pays off in right yeah and i mean just a quick shout out that the specific sort of launch point for this is actually the first book we read for this podcast Mm-hmm. So here in episode 30, uh, we have a callback all the way to episode one where we talked about Jesper Ewell's half reel. And uh, he talked in that. And I I, th- I seem to recall us having this discussion in that episode. Uh, he talks about how game narratives can be coherent or incoherent, and they are coherent when every aspect of the game uh, is in some way kind of narrativized or like part of the game's narrative, at least. And mm-hmm. his example for an incoherent narrative or like a, a thing that results in narrative incoherence is the fact that Mario has three lives in Super Mario Brothers. Yes. Um and so and these are not these are not evaluative in in the ways that they sound actually i think that's the like one of the problems i have with him in that episode is that it sounds very evaluative like one should be coherent or incoherent uh and he's like mario is too incoherent because he has three lives and there's no narrative justification for it um that's nearly, not really what yule means he's just trying to get at sort of like a, a narrative that is sort of like contained within itself versus one that like has a weird point where you can see how it's been grafted onto the game system. Um, And the Super Mario 64 example then is very useful for Welsh because it is exactly an attempt to make something incoherent about the game, the camera mechanic, coherent in a narrative way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's like a couple of things that are interesting about this just on the face of it. One is that it needed to happen at all because they don't really do this for game cameras anymore. Like there is not a story in most video games today explaining like how you're like, there's not a reason for why there's a camera there and there's no story justification for how the camera works in the way that it does. Um, In some way we've internalized it. Yeah. Um, So there is this way in which uh, Mario had to justify the camera, but never had to justify the three lives thing. Uh, There's that. Uh, But then also he points out that like, even if you have uh, justified the if you have justified the camera, right, made the narrative coherent about the camera, it's still incoherent because you are using the same controller to control both these characters and this other character. And uh, fundamentally, right, is not the actual point. Welsh is sort of suggesting um, that, uh, you know, when you are playing a game, you're a machine operator. Mm-hmm. And like that is like it's not so much the the issue is that uh, you have to convince the player that every mechanic in the game uh, has some sort of like good and fitting narrative uh, rationale behind it. It's more just like to what extent uh, is your is the player comfortable with being made a machine operator and what are the things that need kind of narrative justification in that context and what things don't. Yeah, and he uses this to kind of get to an argument, not not quite against ludology, but um, a way of reading representation mm-hmm. against ludology, meaning that that 
Um, he's reading all these kind of ludologists who are saying that game rules are the thing that matters and everything else is just kind of flavor on top of that, right? So in, in terms of ontology, right, a game is like in terms of being a game is its rules and kind of the the narrative is an after effect or an epiphenomenon of that. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you, you know, um, what me, what is different about Crash Bandicoot and Spire of the Dragon is that uh, uh, is not that one is a bandicoot and one is a dragon, as we all know. Mm-hmm. Those are very different, very different creatures. Um, uh, what's different about those games in this kind of uh, reading of Jesper Yule here and the reading of the ludologists, what's different about those games is that uh, one game has a charge attack and one game has a spin attack. Like mm-hmm. those are the fundamental, quote unquote, real. Oh, it's the game. Yeah, I was going to say it's the, the ludologists. <laughs> every every time, every time I'm talking, they're coming to get me. But but that's the thing, you know, that, that's the way that Welsh is positioning it, right? That at the end of the day, what is quote unquote real about those games are those rule differences. And those can kind of be qualitatively analyzed through very particular rule implementations, you know, in the way that we access those. Um. And but and he says, well, uh, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I really like this quote. This is on 57. He says the fictional layer thus plays an important mediating function in gaming, recontextualizing the rules and joining them to systems of meaning and circuits of exchange beyond the screen. Yes. In uh, quote. I really like that quote. That, that's so good. Um, and, you know, to take it back to uh, um, uh, Crash Bandicoot and Spyro, right, <laughs> is that uh, Crash Bandicoot is wholly dependent on like how much you accept uh, this like weird pseudo, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, I was going to say, I guess it is appropriative, although I don't know if that's the best word, right? Of like voodoo, mask, whatever stuff, right? It's part of a whole racial regime of thinking that is just kind of ideological accepted. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the same way, right? Spyro fits into a whole fantasy universe, right? Mm -hmm. And um, uh, all these other kind of cultural signifiers that have to do with, uh, with that. Um, and so, right. The, the difference between those games is not just, you know, obviously it's not just its rule systems, but what other kind of ideologies it fits into. Um, I, I think a really key point here, right. And someone who's making, um, a similar argument is, um, uh, um, uh, Soraya Murray. I don't, mm. I don't know why I, I I couldn't come up with their last name for a second, yeah. right? But but Soraya Murray, right, is trying to read the the way we exist in a game space with the ideology of that game space and how it fits into all these other systems of thought that we're talking about. And I just think that these are really useful kind of um, uh, you know uh, complementary arguments. Mm-hmm. Is that what all we have to say about the incomplete worlds? Because it actually fits uh, pretty neatly into the the beginning of the next chapter. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I think that uh, I just want to say I think this chapter is really cool because I think that the way it casts game studies as a fight over basically what is really real uh, is a really interesting way of 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 rethinking the you know whatever ludology narratology debates um, as instead of being about you know um, uh, what's the thing we should care the most about. It's about what is the thing that is the thing. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's a kind of a discussion of being. So um, I, I think that's, you know, new ways of reading that debate, I think, are always useful for me. Yeah. And I mean, it's that's also a great example because the next chapter is called Gaming in Context, Self-Reflexive Strategies. Uh, and we're going to have three test examples that I'll 
three test cases that I'll get through. Uh, but mm-hmm. his first example is to return to the issue of Mario's three lives and how this <laughs> renders this renders the the game of Super Mario uh, narr- narratively incoherent. Um, like I again, I understand what you all means, but it's just it's so funny to have that as a thing you can say about Mario, that this is incoherent uh, because he has multiple lives. Uh, <laughs> he but, is a plumber and yet he jumps on mushroom men impossible yeah. <laughs> <laughs> having three lives that has nothing to do with rescuing the princess mm-hmm. uh but what uh what welsh points out and i think this is very canny of him uh and i think you know points to what i was for instance in the in the in cold blood chapter and about the actual sort of like site of reception in the scene of reading uh to people playing mario uh you know the the original super mario brothers it did not strike anyone as weird or incoherent that Mario had three lives because the people playing these games were familiar with the live systems from arcade games. Mm-hmm. And that is I in- really I really wanted you to be like, because the people who played Mario had three lives. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was 1985. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, and, and Ronald Reagan had yet to abolish the three lives system. <laughs> Nixon took Bretton Woods and Reagan took the three <laughs> lives. It's something that we live with in America every day. <laughs> oh, we wonder why millennials have it so bad. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> they do, they're, they're purchasing power is one third. They only get one life. You can only accumulate so many points. How many coins can you get with one life? Anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. The, 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 the point, right. That uh, Welsh makes is that the like the the narrative of a game or rather one of the things he says about the ludologists right is one of the ways that the ludologists uh formulate their arguments against narrative in games is that they give a a sort of purposefully limited argument for what a narrative is that it is mm-hmm. going to be uh you know it's going to uh, progress in a certain way it's going to uh have a logical sequence in a certain sense of causality it's going to end in a certain way uh and uh you know the in the previous chapter the way he puts this is and this is page 60 quote what if this issue is not that game worlds are incoherent but uh the expectation that they should be there that they shouldn't be Right. Like what if what if we are asking for something from games that games don't give? Right. What if our idea of coherence is not something that fits on this medium or this format? Um, Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when you play Mario, you are familiar with games with life systems from arcades. And so you don't quest like that's like that is part of how you tell the story of Mario to yourself. Right. Like that is what the object or the experience uh, is. Um, and so if games are kind of always incomplete in that way, because uh by virtue of the fact that to play a game, you need to know you're playing a game. They are going to uh, signal a kind of, uh, I I almost used the word ontological, right? Uh, But I think one of the words that he uses is rupture, uh, a a kind of like a a, a move of scission, right? That says, Mm -hmm. okay, after this point, the game starts. Here's kind of like this little mechanical layer that gets you started. And then everything else kind of grows out of this. Um, 
what if we treat that uh, first move, that kind of like the scission or like the introduction of the mechanical layer through Mario's three lives or whatever, um, as part of the game and the the narrative that it is telling, or at least a way that it tells a narrative, uh, not just the narrative of the game, the story, um, but like what that game is, how it operates. And so one of the, the well, the three examples that he works through here are Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time, uh, Eternal Darkness and Dot Hack Infection, all pretty, yep. all pretty different games, but they all come out uh, kind of in the early two thousands, uh, and they all mess with the scene of play or the scene of the game's reception in certain ways, or they incorporate it. And so, Prince of Persia, just and I'll just you know run through these, uh, Prince of Persia, um. And I was actually, it was very nice rereading this or reading this uh, to, cause I could remember Prince of Persia, the sands of time and remember actually like how kind of clever it was mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, like just really, really neat stuff. Uh, if you have never played Prince of Persia, the sands of time, um, it has this really interesting conceit where you are playing the game and you are seeing kind of, you know, gameplay happen and you're controlling the prince. Um, But the game is also being narrated by the prince because the game opens with the prince telling the story to another character. Uh, And so as you get into different places, of course, you have kind of like scripted voiceover where he mentions like, now I was like, you know, I went from here and now I was here and and so on. Uh, But the, the thing that you know, makes this super interesting is that the game has a time reverse mechanic where uh, because you're platforming and jumping around your your basic like Ubisoft thing, right? This is the prototype for like Assassin's Creed uh, and all that stuff. Um, you fall off, you hit a trap, you get hurt. Uh, but because you're the prince and you have this magic sand, you can reverse time a limited amount. And so uh, that is a game mechanic. But then also in the game, if you mess up and you actually die, the prince will say in his voiceover, well, that's not actually how it happened. Or like, wait, 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 like as if he's misremembered or something. Mm. Um, And so the game like so there is a narrative to the game, uh, but the player does not always move through it in the same way or in the same or at the same speed as maybe the character who is telling the story does. Uh, But then also, even though the player is playing the game, the narration works as if the story is being told to the player. And yet uh, there is actually a character in the game who is the person that the prince is telling the story to. And she's your AI controlled companion. And so you're you as the player, you end up uh, inhabiting uh, as as kind of a in, in terms of like who you are being addressed as or how the game is addressing you and kind of your actions um in all of these like weird like multifaceted and overlapping ways that are totally incoherent in terms of like who is the person hearing this story or who is the person playing this game and yet nevertheless uh the game manages to tell a story that incorporates all of this weird time loopy nonsense. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and even like if you try to, if when you quit the game, right, the prince will ask you like, oh, wait, like, do, you know, I'm not finished yet. Um, so there's there's that kind of, you know, very twee little angle to it. Imagining the uh, the prince uh, saying, I'm, I'm talking here like Ratsa Rizzo. <laughs> <laughs> Muppets Prince of Persia. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kirby! <laughs> Please give me the sands of time. Um, uh, but uh, the 
anyway, the next example is is Eternal Darkness, which of course has a, a sanity mechanic, right? It has sanity effects because this is a, a, a Lovecraftian style game with lots of monsters and eldritch horrors, and it, you know it goes without saying that the implementation of like sanity mechanics is hugely problematic and ableist in, in, in all sorts of ways. Uh, but this is not a thing that we knew in 2001 when this game came out. Uh, we, we knew it, right? We just didn't talk about it or like there wasn't a, a way to talk back against it. And well, also, given given what we know now about maybe the politics of some of the people who were involved with developer Silicon Knights, yeah, uh, they probably don't care. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> you the, know what I mean? Probably so. does not does not care. Um, but yeah, it, but, but I think it's a compounding problem. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, perhaps involved in systems and and nodes mm, outside of merely mm, the gameplay context. Some mm. sort of mixed realism. Ooh. <laughs> Uh, but in Eternal Darkness, uh, your you play a multitude of characters, uh, but you whenever you see monsters, your sanity meter goes down. And when your sanity meter goes down to a certain extent, uh, that will start to impact gameplay because uh, things will happen in the game that don't normally happen or the game will start faking you out. And this can be something as simple as uh, you walk into a room and you see some ammo pickups on the ground uh, that are you know, for your character's most powerful weapon. But when you try to pick them up, you can't. And no matter, and there's like so many of them, but you try to pick them up and then the screen flashes and you're back at the beginning of the room and that ammo isn't there anymore, right? The game spawned in some fake ammo to, to, to like trick you. Uh, but then also things like, uh, you know, the volume bar on your TV will suddenly show up and then start ticking down until the game has zero volume. So, there are sanity effects that work both like in the game, right in the game's world uh, and are sort of perceptible to the, the characters in a way. Uh, but then there are also sanity effects that take into account the player's situation and what they are doing and kind of their technological apparatus. And in the end, right, all of these sanity effects are addressing, as he says, uh, they address the player as such. So even though there is a narrative reason for, say, this such and such a character to want to have all of these shotgun shells, uh, really, that is there for the player to be like, oh, hell yes, I've got some ammo. Let me pick this up. And then the feeling of confusion or uh, uh, dismay when you realize it's it's uh, all all a sanity effect. Yeah, I I really like this argument. Uh, mm -hmm. And I like the way that this is put out because I think that, you know, not I think generally the way that that um, Eternal Darkness is talked about, right, is that there are kind of like, uh, fi you know, diegetic fictional things. And then there's like the meta stuff, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, I think another good example of this is Psychomantis, right? Metal Gear Solid, mm -hmm. who who kind of like messes with your your TV stuff and talks about your uh, memory card and all that kind of stuff. And what Welsh is saying, right, and just to kind of reiterate what you're saying and to put it in a different context, he, he is saying when we make a distinction between what's happening in the story of the game and what's happening, uh, uh, you know, kind of meta, right, at the level of messing with your volume bar or deleting your save games or whatever, it, that that's not really about, like, your character desire. So it's not really diegetic. Picking up that ammo is something, as you just said, that's about you as a player either feeling more safe or feeling more powerful, or whatever, and then being denied that. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it's all uh, meta, right? Mm -hmm. It's all geared toward your relationship to the systems of the game, not merely, you know, this kind of hermetic world 
or you know hermetic seal around the narrative and then the stuff that that breaks out of that um so it, it's all like quote unquote uh well i guess it's all the volume bar right every single part of it is actually the volume bar yeah we just don't don't think of it that way yeah no, I mean, I just I, really like it. I just wanted to, you know, hammer on it a little bit. I think it's I, I like this, too. Uh, and then the last example is dot hack, uh, which is uh, of the game of all the books and all the games in this that I have touched and played. This is probably dot hack was the one that I played the least. Uh, but basically, it is as a game. Um, it is a game within a game. It is a game about you being a player who is uh you are a person who uses a computer the game looks like a computer screen like a computer desktop and you have you know mail and email and internet and so on uh and one of the things that you can do on your computer screen is play this mmo called the world and that's kind of where your sort of uh more traditional like jrpg gameplay comes in is like you pull up the world and then you play in in this mmo it is not an mmo of course uh but like the characters you are meeting in the game are like people it's 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 like the experience of playing a game with a person online right there is the character that they play in the game but then there is also like the character who is the person who plays that character uh and then of course the plot gets into all of this stuff about like oh oh no people like something something weird is going on in in on the internet and in the MMO and like people who get attacked in the MMO uh either die in real life or go comatose i don't remember uh but the real sort of point here for Welsh's argument right is that this game is it, it recognizes and makes the most of the fact that uh as as players of games our site of play like our literal embodied material site of play is as much a part of the narrative of a game uh in in many respects as like whatever the the quote-unquote story is yeah and uh you know just another plug i'm also writing about a very similar thing in my own <laughs> book so i was very happy to read this and be like okay someone else is talking about this Phew. yeah um all right so i hold on i gotta take a pause here okay because you've said you've played all the games. Uh -huh. So you've played Dot Hack. Yeah. Did you play all the Dot Hack games or just this one? I did not. I just, I just played this one and oh. uh, it was too confusing for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I just I just wanted a straightforward MMO or not MMO. Um, I hate MMOs. I wanted a straightforward JRPG, um, mm. which is actually I should probably go back and retry this because like this is now totally all of my bullshit. Right. Like, <laughs> well, so that's the thing is like, so uh, my memory of dot hack, right. You know, so I, I was a, I think I had a subscription. I must've had a subscription to, uh, I think I did. I think I got a subscription for Christmas one year to electronic gaming monthly. Cause that was like the magazine that I could regularly get, mm -hmm. um, you know, around where I lived in like grocery stores or whatever. Cause we didn't have bookstores. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I remember when dot, dot hack came out and, you know, I was like, Oh, I want to really try to get this. And, but you know, unless I drove an hour, uh, uh, you know, there was no way to get a game that wasn't carried at Walmart. And unfortunately my local Walmart did not carry dot. <laughs> oh, hack. No. Uh, yeah. It just, you know, not enough room on that, like one display case uh, in the electronics department. And so, yeah, I never, I, I, it was always like a thing I wanted to play. And then like, they just kept coming out and I was like, I really want to play all these things. <laughs> uh, and I just never had an opportunity to, 
Um, like huge, huge bummer. I may, I might have to go back and, and give it a shot. Cause like you're saying, it is really kind of my bullshit too. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, so maybe, maybe I should give it a go. Th- thanks, uh, Timothy Welsh for, uh, for, you know, <laughs> like, uh, uh, spreading the good word of, of dot hack, uh, mm-hmm. 15 years after the fact. I think so. I, they might still be going. I don't know. I remember there were like six games. So. I was, it was it was one of the it was like a transmedia thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, there was anime. Uh huh. There was an anime. There were DVD. Yeah, all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's that. That's sort of the last one uh, for that chapter. And uh, again, sort of the point here, right, is that these are these are ways for Welsh to point like these are games. Welsh can point at them and be like, look, these games realize that in some way, like narrative or story or whatever is happening here. Uh, and so maybe our, our ways of talking about games should incorporate that. Yeah. All of these first five chapters really are trying to dig at the issue of, and this is kind of what I was talking about earlier about, you know, an implied ontology that you kind of have to, to figure out on your own is that all of these different objects are trying to get at that indistinguishable point where what is inside the book or inside the game is actually revealed to be something operating outside of that, right? The level of player reception. And it's working on our confusion or indistinguishing uh, or inability to distinguish maybe between uh, the inside and the outside where, you know, where's the hard barrier between these things. Mm-hmm. And that's why narrative is so important, right? Is because if you're only focused on the rules, it becomes pretty easy to say, that's what's over there. And then I access these rules, right? You know, it's a very linear model of that's the game. You know, I can manipulate the shape, uh, or, you know, the rotation of the Tetris blocks and I can, uh, manipulate where they go. Um, but ultimately, it's just, you know, those rules of manipulation that I can I can do. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the easy. I think for well, she's saying that's an easy thing to do. However, it's so easy that it does not actually speak to the reality of how things are working. And so all of these, you know, are very disparate examples are just different ways of thinking about how it's so much more complicated than, you know, what the ludologists would say. And it's actually, I think for him, much more complicated than what the narratologists would say. It's it's this weird interfacing of the two of those things mediated through the gameplay experience of the player. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, for me, is that ontology? Is it epistemology? Is it phenomenology? Hmm all <laughs> perhaps you know perhaps it is involved in all of those things and um you know uh i would like to know more about that please <laughs> so, but uh but yeah so sorry sorry to get us hung up there but um yeah what about the next chapter well uh the, i mean we've kind of been alternating so the next chapter can be yours if you would like I only took two uh, notes for this whole chapter, uh, and the reason for that is that I felt like a whole lot of this was just additional theoretical terminology for what we already knew, um, uh, in the sense that this was dealing with uh, metafiction, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the kind of like fictional um, or things in literary culture that are reflective of their own conditions, um, but ultimately I didn't really see that as very different than, than anything else. Uh, there's a lot of talk about David Foster Wallace in this chapter. Mm-hmm. I just kind of read this and thought, yeah, Michael's going to have a lot to say about this. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so maybe I don't need to, um, <laughs> the thing that I will flag maybe at the very top here though, is I'm very confused still by virtualities here. Uh, at one point he says that media generated virtualities extend from all color television to the dot com crash and beyond. And I have no idea about what all-color television, why that would instantiate media virtualities as opposed to something else, mm-hmm. right? Like, I, I don't know why that 
in, you know, creates media generated virtualities, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Anyway, there's a lot about irony in here too. I don't know. Do you do you want to have a pressy? Sorry to kick it off to you, but yeah. I didn't uh, I didn't find a lot here for me. Well, I, I can outline this chapter, I guess. Uh, even though I do think this is the point where uh, the book does start to lose me a little bit. Um, uh, I will we'll talk about that, but just to talk a little bit more about David Foster Wallace. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the big uh, interesting things, the trends that. Welsh points out, and this is why metafiction is so important here, uh, is that even as, uh, like technology was like, you know, contemporary technologies were trending in the way that were going to lead us to like virtual reality and all of this talk about immersion and VR. And even, even as, uh, like Hamlet on the hollow deck is coming out and making kind of these claims for how immersive literature already is, uh, Nevertheless, we have seen in the United States and, uh, you know, in other places as well, but we're talking about the U.S. uh, just limitedly here, um, we have already seen, like, the explosion of uh, the high postmodernists in the 60s who are writing fiction that is sort of egregiously non-immersive and intentionally so. Uh, So this is, you know, uh, Pynchon and Barth um, and... and, uh, uh, Don DeLillo, Don DeLillo, I don't remember when DeLillo starts writing. It might be a little bit later. Uh, yeah, a little bit, but it's same idea. Right. It's the, so like just the, the pension example is, is the, well, Barth is easy because like Barth, uh, John Barth writes stories that like are avowedly metafictional, right? That, um, end up being about the stories themselves and so on. So this thing that is supposed to be so immediate, so immersive, uh, literature is met with a cohort of writers who are intentionally doing the opposite, right? They're being um, sort of perverse in that way, right? Turned against it. Uh, Pynchon writes uh, these sort of bizarre, long, immaculately researched and uh, incredibly detailed kind of alternate histories of of like Europe, right? Or like the United mm-hmm. States. And at the same time, uh, they're going to be filled with all sorts of crap that he made up. And like the main characters are going to be named things like, I don't know, Johnny Teflon, right? <laughs> uh, all of this stuff that like on the one hand, right, uh, is validating what uh, proponents of kind of the, the bourgeois novel from the 19th century onward have said is is the format's strength, which is its verisimilitude, its, its realism effect. Um, they're taking that and then also just like not caring about actually observing anything like a uh, realist decorum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that has happened. Right. And, and that to uh, Welsh, I think, suggests that uh, fiction has gotten to some problems and maybe some questions uh, that games may have or do have kind of before the fact. Uh, Welsh gets to this through a, a sort of long unpacking of David Foster Wallace's uh, very famous essay, E Unibus Plurum, um, which is about uh, television and U.S. fiction. And uh, a lot of terms come up here that don't necessarily come up for the rest of the book. But uh, uh, what Wallace is doing in that essay uh, is arguing that television took the the meta tendencies of, po- of post-war literature 
right? The sort of like the 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 weird uh, ironies of postmodernism, which is things like when you have a character named like you know the main character of uh, Crying of Lot Forty Nine is named Edipa Moss, and then her husband is named Mucho, so his name is Mucho Moss. Uh, mm-hmm. But it is nevertheless presented as kind of a realist novel. So there's an irony at work in Pension where you understand as you're reading it, like, I'm not supposed to take all of this on seriously, right? Not all of this is sort of happening on kind of the same level of emotional authenticity or whatever. Uh, Foster Wallace looks at uh, this kind of trend of television taking similar steps. And like one of his big examples is... uh, characters from other from certain sitcoms guesting on other sitcoms or like showing up in kind of like a little guest role and they're playing a different character but there's a joke made in the show about their role on another show and this treat this this for for Wallace right uh this sort of teaches the audience or may teach the audience right this is his worst case scenario although he does think it's happening uh it teaches the audience that sort of everything is kind of like fake and a joke and illusory right it it teaches a kind of media cynicism right Mm -hmm. you are clever the his argument right is not that people are just like looking at this and like getting stupider his argument is that people watch this and they are flattered by the medium what he is arguing is that the television is saying, like, you're smart enough to know this is all fake, that you can see through all of this. Um, and so uh, the the sort of problem for Wallace, right, is like what happens to the world or to a society when you teach most of its most of the people who live there uh, that being sort of like cool and detached and ironic and doubting of basically everything is is the best way to live your life. Um not exactly stuff that comes up well it it this touches on some of where we're going to go by the end of the book um mm. but i don't think like wallace's particular ethical questions about like the purpose of fiction and what fiction is doing uh, at this moment in time is, is analogous necessarily to the questions that welsh is asking by the end and uh i mean that ends the first part of the book and gives us our entry into part two extended studies and the last two chapters uh which are again speaking to what we said at the beginning of this episode not that different from the chapters we've talked about thus far the only real difference is that rather than being about a couple of texts they are usually just about one of them yep they're long form reads essentially uh uh uh-huh do you want to i hate to give you two in a row but uh it's your favorite novel michael all right so this first chapter this first chapter this is chapter six it's called uh when what's real doesn't matter and it's on house of leaves uh, which is a 2000 novel by mark z danielewski uh and i i'll just you know frame this at the top my my problem with this chapter is that i just fundamentally do not agree with uh, with Timothy Welsh on what House of Leaves is about. Like, I just do hmm. not think that this is a correct reading of this novel. Um. <laughs> well, to, to put it all on the table, right, we, uh, uh, you sent me a message about this, about, you know, yeah. just disagreeing with this. And uh, I was like, yeah, I haven't read that novel in 15 years, probably. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I don't remember anything about it. Like, yeah. Not a thing. So, <laughs> um, you know, you're, 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 you're going to have to walk me through it a little bit. 
I mean, I, I, I'm not going to give my alternative reading of what I think House of the Leaves is up to. I just want, I just wanted to be clear that this chapter is, is a problem for me just because I do not think, uh, that the book works in the way that this is going to outline. Uh, but essentially, mm-hmm. if you are not familiar with House of Leaves, um, it was this big deal 20 years ago when it came out um, and still gets talked about uh, because it is an exceptionally strange novel, especially for a thing that came out uh, like, you know, it, it had a big marketing push behind it. And that actually tells you a lot about uh, sort of what is up with it. Uh, but it's 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 a long book. It's It's got weird... Uh, typographical things going on. Uh, it was expensive to produce because every time the word house shows up in the book, uh, it is blue, right? It is printed in on black and white like a normal book, but every time the word house shows up, it is blue. Uh, and it is about, at first, two things. One, it is about a young man who I've already mentioned named Johnny Truant, who has recently uh, come into possession of a manuscript written by a a dead man um, that the manuscript purports to be an academic study of a documentary film called The Navidson Record. And so the, the book itself is the text of the Nav or the, the, this academic study of the Navidson record, uh, but it is also, uh, it's got footnotes and sort of commentary by Johnny himself. And Johnny is not an academic. He's kind of a, a, you know, low life, uh, like tattoo parlor employee, just sort of like, you know, wasting away, uh, doing his like late nineties, uh, sort of counterculture thing. Um, but as he is reading this book, or like as he's sort of reading through this manuscript that he's uh, recovered, uh, elements of the manuscript start, start showing up in his day-to-day life, or he thinks they are, right? The the sort of, one of the things of the novel is like, maybe he's just going crazy. Um, but <laughs> the Navidson record is about a family, um, uh, the father, I don't remember his first name, but his last name is Navidson, uh, is a famous photojournalist. Uh, and he and his wife and their kids have moved into a house. And it's a Stephen King novel is what it is. Um, they've moved into a house. Uh, they have and, uh, you know, they come back from vacation and there is a door in their house where there wasn't a door before. And they open it up and there's a closet there where there wasn't a closet before. And then they are doing some remodeling. So the the father takes some measurements of the house and he does the math and he realizes that the floor plan of the house is bigger than the exterior of the house. And then there's another door that opens up and, you know, there's like weird uh, labyrinthine spaces that open up into the walls, even though you should be able to like, this door should open into the front yard, but it opens into a hallway that goes on much, much longer than the front yard exists. Right. And it's all like Mm -hmm. weird and dark and ashy. And eventually of course, people uh, uh, go on a little expedition into there and, and terrible things happen. But what the book does when the characters are traversing the space of of the house, right? The house beyond the house uh, is like they realize like, oh, this is a, a weird little hallway that zigs and zags. And when you turn the page, as they traverse that hallway, the, the printing goes up and down the page rather than going across it. Uh, and there's a scene where they're like going down a spiral staircase and you have to like rotate the book in your hands because the writing spirals down into the center of the page. All of this stuff. Uh, eventually, 
in the book, you get to a point where a character is murdered and the book becomes literal nonsense because the footnotes, which are extensive and have been extensively faked, right? They are uh, like they are citations to real books that really exist. But then there are also like footnotes that are citations to interviews and you'll get like the full text of the interview uh, where like Stephen King actually shows up, right? Stephen King is supposedly interviewed about this documentary film uh, and you get like the Stephen King interview of his kind of like take on it in one of the footnotes. Anyway, hmm. at the moment the murder happens, uh, the 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 footnotes in the lists just become like nonsense, right? They're just like lists of objects and things, and uh, none of it is helpful, and it's all confusing, and you know it it sort of like showcases like the spectacular violence of this character being shot, and sort of the dissolution of meaning, and so on and so forth. Um, all of this is just sort of to say. Uh, that the book uh, embodies the reader and it takes into account the reader's situation uh, as a reader, as a person holding a book in a similar way to like Eternal Darkness or to In Cold Blood, where you have to turn this book around in your hands as you're reading it in order to read it. Uh, your inability to sort of like follow this character beyond their death is represented by the the dissolution of a sort of textual meaning for a, for a good chunk of, of the novel. Um, and that's, you know, that's not controversial. That's not really the part that I disagree with. Uh, mm -hmm. And as I said, I'm not going to get into that. Join, I guess, the Discord and ask me about it if you want to know. But uh, this chapter ends in a very strange way where it kind of tries to, I think, more explicitly raise the question of ethics that we've talked about, ethics and representation, uh, mm -hmm. where, so the, the main character, Navidson, is based on an actual photojournalist named Kevin Carter, who took a picture of a dying Sudanese child. Um, and this is a very famous photograph. You, you have maybe probably seen it if you're listening. And it's, uh, it's this um, small child, like, obviously ill um, because there is a, a famine going on. Like, physically, you can see how ill this child is. Um, sort of, like, lying on the ground, right? Just lying on the ground, uh, looking frail and, and, and pitiful. And just behind the, the kid uh is a vulture like waiting on like just sitting on the ground waiting for the child to die uh and this photograph got sort of you know famous or infamous um one because of like what a clear illustration of of the problem in sudan uh a, a visual illustration of what was happening in sudan right really affecting really gripping um but then mm -hmm. sort of secondly uh what are the ethics of like looking at this dying person like with a vulture behind them like a child literally with a vulture behind them and then taking a picture and then making that part of your professional portfolio and in fact yeah. uh the the person who did this kevin carter uh that photographer he he won an award for this photograph and, and then completed suicide because of the sort of ethical ramifications i guess of it or sort of like his feelings of like what he had done um this is also navidson's backstory uh, but the character or like the the the, the dying Sudanese uh, person um, in the in the text of the novel, it's a girl uh, is a character who has a name and we get kind of uh, Navidson's like, you know, very novelistic uh, uh, interiorized psychological like feelings of guilt over having taken this picture instead of intervening in some way. Uh, and the chapter ends by sort of suggesting that because the book itself explicitly notes that uh 
his that Nabitson story seems to be very similar to the story of, of Kevin Carter, uh, because that's a thing, right? That's in the footnotes or like one of the footnotes of the book is just like Nabitson's story, even though the book is treating Nabitson as if he's real. Nabitson's story seems awfully similar to Kevin Carter's. Um, because of that, the reader is then kind of uh, almost interpolated into uh, like facing the realities of the world outside of the text. Um, yeah. Right. Like, quote, the shades of doubt that overshadow its fictional world are thereby cast in the real world as well, where similar networks of intertextual reference are relied on for veracity and authority. The novel seeks to expose a ubiquitous and inexorable uncertainty roiling beneath the surface of modern life. Okay. Um, <laughs> like, I think like that's that's a connection you can make. I don't yeah. know if that's actually what the novel is doing or what it accomplishes in in kind of this move, right? And um, again, I'm not going to get into sort of like my whole other reading of what's happening here, uh, but that's kind of the the bare bones of it is that. Uh, this is a book that is about its own reading, about its scene of reception, and one of the things that it is trying to do to kind of get over postmodern uh, cynicism that all representations are sort of uh, failing in some way is to uh, kind of make so many representations, like to, to turn up like the volume on textual representation so much that, uh, you know, the reader kind of gets forced back out into the world and, and has to go forth kind of knowing that uh, no representation is going to be kind of a, a, a finality, right? Um, but rather that they're all going to always be held in tension and that uh, it, it's an ongoing process rather than something that you hold in your head. Yeah, the you know a different kind of theory language, right? I, I think what what is happening in both of these extended studies, right, is exactly what you're talking about. It's it's trying to get to um, get get to ethics, right, or get to a more explicit kind of depiction of what it means to then to see mixed realism not just as like a way of understanding these texts, but to make ethical linkages. Like, what does what does engaging with mixed realism do? you know, in the sense of like, uh, what does it allow us to think? And, and so like in a different, uh, theory word register, right. Or in a different lexicon, maybe I think that what we could read this chapter saying is that house of leaves in resting in the space of mixed realism, right. Really making it ambiguous about what's in this fictional world and what's happening outside of the world, particularly with this this uh, character of Delial and then the real Sudanese child, right? Mm -hmm. The thing that's being made. In a different theoretical register, that would be something like the chain of signifiers, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a reference that leads to 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 some place, Right. And the kind of Deridian read of that would be, we think it's going to lead somewhere true and it never does. Right. The, the problem mm -hmm. is that we're always stuck in the reference of another reference. That's not how, uh, well, she's not in that kind of theory paradigm. And so he has replaced it with a, there's a chain of signifiers in the sense of, um, of there is a, Real Sudanese child, which links to Kevin Carter, which links to Navidson, which links to uh, the 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 uh, Delial, which links to our reading about Delial, 
And then there's like the footnote and all that other kind of stuff that, that chains all those things together. And so what Welsh wants us to pay attention to is how that fictional thing is not really a fictional thing. Right. Mm -hmm. When we read about the Sudanese or about Delial, we are reading about a real situation in the world that happened. Mm -hmm. That's ultimately the claim being made. Right. Mm -hmm. That we get we get some sort of access in, in going through the fictional world. We end up with access to the quote unquote real again, the physical embodied world we live in. Mm hmm. This, I think this is uh, kind of what you're saying too, but but just, just to maybe to reiterate from my own perspective, this is not how I see representation working. Mm -hmm. um, representation is not just like an easy circle back to the real world. I think Welsh has prepped us for uh, to respond to the reflexive argument that I want to make. And the reflexive argument that I want to make is attaching this fictional thing, this fictional character scenario to a real world person who died is bad. Mm -hmm. Like that's my reflexive thing. Like how disrespectful, mm -hmm. but we read the introduction, Michael, mm -hmm. which says that in fact, you know, this is the problem, right? This is the problem with uh super Columbine massacre RPG, right? We, we, we think that video games do two things at one time. They both can't ever capture the thing and yet they capture it too well. Mm -hmm. Right. So Delial as a figure cannot ever capture the thing and yet also captures it too well. Mm -hmm. I think that's what we're supposed to be doing. However, I don't understand that it's the second part that I don't get. I don't actually understand how this is meant to capture it too well. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it captures it too well to me. Yeah. Um, and so what we've been given is a system of like, uh, you know, two things happening at once that's supposed to easily transpose through this like figuration of mixed realism into house of leaves and i think what what's troubling for the system then you know and troubling for mixed realism as a concept is that it doesn't for me you know this is not a one-to-one -one relationship and if in and, and and maybe okay fine maybe that just means that video games do it in a way that fiction doesn't you know that that mm -hmm. literature doesn't However, the whole book is that all of these things do it the same. And so, you know, I, 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 you know, maybe I'm the wrong reader for it, right? But it seems like there is a logical problem here uh, mm -hmm. or like a theoretical, a philosophical consistency problem, maybe is a better way of putting it. And that once again, I know I'm a broken record, but, but maybe being more upfront about what are the ontological questions here or what are the epistemological questions or what are the phenomenological questions, these ways of understanding the world, maybe being a little bit more clear about those would make it easier for me to understand how that system of mixed realism and its kind of uh, representational and ethical regime, how it would go from the introduction of this book to then be applied to chapter six because mm -hmm. i agree with you i just don't i don't necessarily think that this works here yeah um but i know with that sort of established uh here's a way that this works in books uh would you like to talk about chapter seven and how this might actually work in a game uh sure the last thing i want to say about chapter six is that um uh, uh welsh basically says that there's not a word for this um, that, that we don't really have a word for this weird translational issue of like adaptation from Navidson to the real world and, and how those things work. Uh, we do have a word for that. It's called catacresis. And, uh, <laughs> but once again, it is well represented in film studies. I'm just out here, uh, you know, holding it down for film studies. 
regularly. Bad translation, bad adaptation, or uh, the inability for two things to meet fully and to represent one another, that is catachresis. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's exactly what's being talked about. In this well, you chapter. know where else we have catachresis? Oh, is it in this next chapter? No. I was just going to oh. say, it's not, it's not just film studies. We've got it in early modern rhetoric, too. They love to talk about oh, catachresis. Oh, well, I'm sure that we ripped it off from you. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we stole it. Oh, it's Hamlet. I'll speak daggers to her. That's fake. No, nope. made that up. That's, that's not in there. That's uh, uh, Judith H. Anderson, one of the most uh, uh, well-regarded high formalist critics. That is her go-to example when she explains catechesis. Is the line from Hamlet where Hamlet says, "I will speak daggers to her." It's it's a metaphor that does not make sense, but nevertheless makes sense. <laughs> Mm-hmm, yeah, the um, I, I think at this point you could be like you could say anything is in Hamlet and I'd be like, OK, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's in Hamlet. Uh, but yeah, chapter seven is called Acceptable Losses on uh, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. And it is a chapter that, you know, try, trying to or, or doing the work of bringing all this together uh, again, kind of like chapter six does with House of Leaves. Um, and it, it, about half the chapter is spent kind of wa- walking through what we, uh, you know, on this show, uh, kind of know as a common lineage now of the relationship between, uh, military production of video game stuff and then, um, uh, entertainment version of that. Right. So, um, we've got McKinsey Wark writing about the military entertainment complex in our episode on gamer theory. We've got, uh, uh, Dyer Witherford and uh, Deputer writing about uh, a similar thing, spending about half the book of Games of Empire. So if you're if you're curious about kind of the stuff that that's happening around the relationship between the military and uh, the world of entertainment video games, we have other episodes that have talked about that as well. Uh, if you're just jumping in for this episode, and also you know the book I talk about constantly, but we still have not done an episode on uh, Patrick Krogan's gameplay mode, which is still my <laughs> my favorite book on this topic. And uh, we're never going to do the episode, apparently. <laughs> like apparently. I just keep I keep kicking it down the road. Um, but uh, but a great book. So um, there's that. That's that's kind of the first half of this chapter or so. Um, but then the second half of the chapter deals with kind of two two instances um, or two missions, I guess, or parts of missions in uh, both Modern Warfare and Modern Warfare 2, both of which put you in the position of a drone operator. Um, and well, OK, Modern Warfare 2, you're operating a drone. And so it puts you in the position of the visual position of a real life drone operator in the sense that what you are seeing on your screen in your living room or your office or on your computer screen, wherever, what you are seeing is the same thing that drone operators see, meaning that you are seeing out of a very kind of rough camera out of the front of a drone in in the case of Modern Warfare 2, or you're seeing uh, through the uh, infrared camera of an AC-130 in Call of Duty Modern Warfare of uh, uh, Call of Duty 4, Modern Warfare. Uh, you can't just say Modern Warfare anymore because that's its mm-hmm. own game. So now we've got to be very, very distinct about what we're talking about. Um, and so basically this this argument is, or this, this chapter is just working through what that means. What does it mean for us to take on the position and for the uh, realism of that situation to become intermingled with the entertainment object? That's kind of it. I, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, where where this lands ultimately, and and you know, I, I see that you've taken a lot of notes on this chapter. Um, so if you have additional stuff for this, uh, you know, uh, 
you know, definitely step in. But where this lands ultimately, again, is a question of ethics. At the very end of the chapter, um, let me flip to it in my book. At the very end of the chapter, um, Welsh ends up making a very similar argument to the end of, or, you know, the kind of reading of the Sudanese child and Delial in House of Leaves, that there is a weird relationship that's happening when you are shooting these NPCs, these, you know, fake characters that don't exist, these digital projections. There's something interesting that's happening when you are shooting them and hearing this kind of commentary from the in-game characters about how you're doing such a great job and it's all this kind of like terrible war talk. There's a, there's an ethical thing that's happening there um, and uh, that that can connect up to real world versions of that um it's uh it's very vague let me i i want to read kind of what i think is the 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 big uh you know ball slamming in the in the hoop here Mm -hmm. or what's being positioned is that um it was on 156 and 157 i'm going to read the full paragraph while it may be easy to shrug off the modern warfare series as just games thereby justifying whatever on-screen atrocities are visited on inconsequential infinitely responding npcs the ability to do so relies on the informatic objectivized logic that is also playing the contemporary digitally mediated warfare the very pillars that prop those systems up Playing a modern warfare game thus bears more of a more than a metaphorical relationship to the actual modern warfare technologies and practices it represents on screen. This is not to say that the enemy silhouettes scurrying across our simulated AC-130 targeting display are corresponded to real human lives. In remediated uh, YouTube videos or newsreel footage of actual AC-130 attacks, though, they do. As we increasingly live our lives in online environments and interact with one another through screens of various sizes, it is of utmost importance that we are able to recognize in the digital display the weight and value of human life, even if all we ever know is the outline of pixelated silhouette. And so the argument being made here is ultimately that while obviously in a video game we are not shooting people with a real AC-130, the... the, uh, modes of logic that we're engaged with the kind of enjoyment that we get out of that the uh modes of thinking that we're accepting with that all of those things are entraining us into a set of behaviors that maybe make those things more acceptable so when we i think how reading this last paragraph i think the argument welsh is making without really hammering on it which is very frustrating to me i think if you're going to make this argument you need to make it you need to make it clear but the way I read that is that the problem is not that, you know, our real AC, you know, the, the problem is not that we're controlling the AC-130 in the video game and that means we're killing people. The problem is that we do it in the video game and it is gamified. And then when we see it happening, right, when we see archival footage or footage of war crimes or things like that, we are... Uh, being brought into a kind of system of video game representation and thinking that makes us unable to consider visually um, and and perhaps ethically the actual impact that's happening in the real world instance. Um, This is very similar to arguments in media effects around, you know, um, like disaster porn or ruin porn. Mm -hmm. The idea that, that we kind of get, we get used to these things and in getting used to them, we uh, don't really recognize or realize the ethical implications of them. Well, and that's sort of what's confusing about this chapter is that sometimes uh, it seems like games are like they're, they're, they're like doing some sort of auto critique. Um, mm-hmm. 
that is very confusing. Like on page 151 to two, he there's a scene in uh, one of these games. I think the second one uh, where you knife a soldier in the chest or the throat or something. And the the way because it's a first person game, you like are holding his head like you have your mouth over his hand and you can like look into his eyes and like watch his eyes roll back as you kill him. Yeah, it's actually on the cover, too. Yeah, that's yeah the image on the cover. Um, and so here uh, here he writes um, making eye contact with this algorithm in effect counteracts this technological anonymity by challenging the player to see a human face in the digital display. Which is, uh, I mean, it sounds to me qu- quite a bit like, um, you know, like this. Put this within the context of the argument. Uh, he is sort of pushing for us to consider this beyond just being a representation, right? Like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. In this moment, we we do have a kind of sense of an ethical, uh, not call to act, but a, a, a sort of like it's like a shooting a flare gun up into the sky, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like I am doing this in a game. I know that this is not a thing I would like to do in real life. I would not like to murder someone. Um, and having the and be and sort of like recognizing my own capacity to have this scene play out in a video game and realize like, oh, this is kind of like intense and gross, and I don't really like it. Um, it is a my ability to read uh, with concern what is ultimately an arrangement of pixels and some code operating uh, together, right? I, I am I am capable of reading this representation um, in a way analogous to how, or like I'm, I'm, I'm able to analogize this to how I feel about the world and people and so on, um, which I think is true, but like, is that what is happening when most people play that scene? I don't think so. No, I, I don't either. And and uh, I guess the thing I should mention is this this chapter begins and kind of has in the middle of it too a reading of the Modern Warfare 2 mission No Russian uh-huh. where you're playing this kind of character who is um uh going on a shooting spree basically through a Russian airport. And uh and but but that that's ultimately not where it lands. I just want to flag that for for people who do it. But I, but yeah, I agree. I mean, um, he he's writing about no Russian in particular in this chapter, and is talking about how that mission, you know, it's somber and like you become it becomes very difficult to like actually do the thing the game is asking you to do, which is like gun down civilians, right? It's it's um, uh, there was a moral panic around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, extremely controversial. It's so controversial that the day one patch of the game, um, gave you the ability to skip the mission. It basically said at the beginning, would you like to be skipping this mission or not? Um, and, uh, but, but what's also crucial about that is that I got that game the day it came out. My roommate in college bought it and he played through that mission, uh, gloriously. It had no issue with it and it was not somber in any way. And we all talked about how goofy it was, right? And I have mm-hmm. a different relationship to it now than I did when I was whatever, 20 years old or whenever, when it came out. Um, I, I think I have a much more complicated relationship and, and I do think it's much more somber. I played it recently for the remaster and I had, I, I experienced that scene differently than I did 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think you're right. I, I think there's a difference between reading that scene that you talked about, the kind of, uh, NPC murder scene. I think you can talk about what opportunities that opens up 
in relationship to, you know, in, in constructing relationships between the player and the game. And you can talk about uh, what it does for you. Mm-hmm. I think you, you get in real dicey territory when you start saying this is what the scene does. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm much more comfortable in a world of this is what opportunities, what affordances, right? You know, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I'm a, I'm a Deluso Qatarian, right? What what kind of potential it opens up? But that potential is always uh, able to be eaten by hegemonic forces, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I just don't, um, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't see it here. Yeah, I don't see it going here. And I, I think that I understand why this chapter ends in such ambiguity and why Welsh is so unwilling to say that this is a direct line of, uh, you know, of ethics because he does not want this book to be read as a naive video games make you violent argument. Mm-hmm. I think that even when this book came out in 2016, I think we are at the point now where we can talk about what systems games uh, align us with in which which ones they don't and some of those are violent mm-hmm. i don't think video games cause violence in a direct one-to-one correlation i do think video games can nullify you to certain uh, uh causative actions the last book that we read right the mm-hmm. you know intersectional tech is all about instances in video games you know especially when all of those players are talking about uh racist white players talking to them right it's mm-hmm. about how play and the uh, one of the affordances of these video games is to lower people's uh, inhibitions when they're talking to people who they know are embodied on the other line but are being mediated through a video game. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is in training you in some sort of behavior. Um, and so I understand, you know, the long legacy of the video game violence debates are a thing you don't necessarily want to get attached to. Uh, and I th- but I think you can be much more specific about what you think video games do. Um, and not get caught up in that. I mean, the Amanda Phillips piece that we did for the show on Metropolitics, you know, mm-hmm. is making that very elaborate and, and distinct argument. Mm-hmm. Games have to do things to people. Everyone agrees. <laughs> <laughs> they, they have to do things to players, right? If games couldn't do something to you, then you couldn't ever get better at a video game. Um, and I just think you got to be a little bit more specific than what we get in Chapter 7 here. Uh, and that sort of takes us to the coda, uh, which after attempting to talk about a book and then talking about a video game, we are going to very briefly talk about a book and a video game. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, Blood Meridian and we're going to talk about uh, Red Dead Redemption. I just want to register here, like I try to do every time, uh, how much I never understood how uh, Harold Bloom thinks in a general sense. Yeah. You know, uh, a famed literary critic. Um, uh, Harold Bloom, because uh, he says that apparently that Blood Meridian transcends its violence to become uh, some sort of a beautiful expression of language. And I have no idea how you can read that book and come to that conclusion. I mean, it's the simple. book. The you've book just, is its violence. You you just be Harold Bloom. Ah, <laughs> uh, Michael, and yes, I would simply become Harold Bloom. <laughs> <laughs> when faced with this dilemma, I would simply be Harold Bloom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, Harold Bloom is a guy who's, uh, uh, well, was, uh, he passed away recently, but uh, very big into this idea of, like, the autonomy of, of poetry and the aesthetic uh, mm-hmm. as sort of, you know, not connected to a lot of specific sort of ethical concerns as, as we might articulate them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. 
But uh, yeah, so Blood Meridian, in case you couldn't tell if you haven't heard it, uh, heard of it before, uh, is a novel by Cormac McCarthy, the guy who wrote uh, The Road and No Country for Old Men, the novels um, uh, that those films were also based on. Blood Meridian is kind of his, uh, in, some might argue his magnum opus. It's this a bizarre epic poetic western that is just like horrifically horrifically violent uh as a, a welsh uh puts it this way quote through the beauty and artistry of language readers become complicit with the cycles of violence on which the american west and its mythos were founded mccarthy's novel simultaneously undoes the romantic western imaginary and affirms it returning to that kernel of the real the brutal the brutal setting of the western frontier mediated by mccarthy's seductive language which warrants acceptance and enjoyment unquote um there are a lot of questions we could maybe ask about uh just the entire like uh, Welsh himself, right, because you've already brought up uh, Bloom, is not unique in this argument that uh, there is something about, like, the, the beauty of McCarthy's language that overpowers the violence that the the violence of the actions or the situations that that language is being used to describe. Um, and this is like you see different versions of this in, in literary theory, right? Uh, this is also an argument that is kind of made about uh, Nabokov's Lolita, um, right? That it is uh, specifically a novel about a horrible thing that is being that happening, but the language being used to describe it uh, eludes the horrificness, right? In, in a different way. And actually, I think in a bizarre way, it's a much more honest argument about what's going on in Lolita than what I think is happening in Blood Meridian, because um, I do not think that the the project of that book is to show is to like overcome the violence with the beauty of language uh, i mm -hmm. agree with you right i think they're one and the same uh but anyway there's that and then there's also red dead redemption which is a cowboy video game uh made by rockstar so it's really gross and has a lot of murders and it's very cynical uh and so the the thing that jumps out at me about this chapter actually right is that uh, literary study or liter literature in general, language in general, actually has a massive leg up on video games in terms of making violence seem acceptable. Mm, say more. <laughs> I'm just thinking like, uh, like comparing like uh, Blood Meridian to Red Dead Redemption and like some of the stuff that happens in Blood Meridian and people like... And also, like, I guess, like, the density of the stuff that can happen there. And yet we still have a kind of, like, entire critical genealogy that's all about just, like, ah, how 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 the language itself is so beautiful that uh, the horror of what you are being asked to imagine is somehow, like, uh, lessened or dampened or contained. Uh, whereas mm -hmm. sort of the equivalent argument about video games actually, or not really, you know, not maybe to draw one-to-one -one comparison here, but it would be about a video game. It would be like saying like, and there you hear things like this, right? But like, well, the things that you're doing are horrible, but the controls are just so dang good that I love doing it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. The equivalent would be like, I just love pulling that R2 trigger. It feels so good. The force feet, you know, the slight vibration in the controller, the, you know, the gun animation that happens. It's just, it's the, the linkages between those things are just so exquisite that I'm not even thinking about, you know, the, 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 whatever, the other person on the other end or the NPC. 
Right. And uh, I guess what I meant by saying, like, you know, literature has a leg up is that you don't have an entire critical genealogy of people being like, uh, well, yes, we can all agree that that like the the various uh, oppressions and murders and so on going on in this game are are bad, but actually they are redeemed by the mechanics being so good. Hmm, or do we? Or do we? I mean, certainly we don't have like a 400-year history of that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> which, is the di- which is the difference. I know, I, I totally understand what you're saying. I think you're right. Um, but, but I think that there is... Um, there is, I think, a, a general vibe of like, if it's fun... I, I think the difference there is fun, right? Yes. And, mechani- and mechanical whatever gets abstracted into this ambiguous category of fun. But right, if it's, if it's fun enough, then it doesn't really matter, right? Mm-hmm. What's, what's happening in front of me? Um, uh, or, you know, if it's, I think the other transposition wouldn't be around violence. It would be around like racism or sexism or whatever. Right. Oh my God. All that other stuff we can like not have to deal with as long as it's fun. Uh, but I think you're right. I think that a different, all of these, um, you know, slightly catacristic, <laughs> but all of these like slightly, um, um, not quite equivalencies here actually matter a whole lot. I don't think you just get to like cram this into 15 pages at the end of the book and be like, ha ha, I, I know what's happened here. I think this is very complicated and I think it requires, I think making this argument of equivalence between Blood Meridian and Red Dead Redemption requires you to do exactly what we just did, which is like really look at what are the formal mechanisms at work here and then what are the um, kind of aesthetic measures or aesthetic things that are being worked out through those formal equivalencies, mm-hmm. which is not being done here at all. Um, yeah. I mean, I think ultimately what happens in the chapter at the very end is that it's just repeating what's in chapter seven, which is that um, both the, that this game invites us to think about what, uh, 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 or invites us to quote, recognize humanity in the on-screen display, Mm -hmm. right? So there's this idea that both Blood Meridian and Red Dead Redemption in their exquisite violence uh, get us to look at something through them, you know, this kind of mechanism of humanity that exists there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it ultimately produces, hold on, I want to read the last, uh, like, little bit of the book, um, which is wild to me. Um, uh, ours, this is the last paragraph of the book, ours is a mixed reality in which big and small screens blend virtual environments into everyday life and old binaries dissolve as the virtual and the actual take on a strange equality. In the great void, unguessed kinships are emerging between man and rock, user and avatar, even if we are still learning to read them. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what, we, what we get here is that um, there are equivalences of realism, of uh, mixed realism, quite literally, uh, that are happening at the edge of fiction and reality, and we have to like be open when we approach them. And these, this book and this game give us different modes of thinking about that. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's worth pointing out also that I uh, he is, I, I assume, I think, right? This is me being a literary critic, I guess. He is trying to echo the judge. Uh, yeah, who is yeah. a character in Blood Meridian? He's like sort of 
uh, the embodiment of, of evil, right? He's, he's, he is, uh, leading out this posse of people to just, you know, go do genocide on, on Native Americans, essentially. I mean, not essentially, that is what he is doing. And in fact, like the, the reason this group of people becomes a problem in the novel is that they stop just killing Native Americans and just start sort of killing whoever they come across, right? Like that's, uh, in one of the things, this is a quote actually that, uh, from the judge that Welsh pulls in, um, uh, specifically about war. Uh, war is the ultimate game because war is at last a forcing of the unity of existence. Uh, and then a little bit later, this is again the judge. And also, I think this is I'm going to say I'm doing this also. So if you're listening you and you haven't read McCarthy or Blood Meridian, you can get a sense for what we are actually talking about when we say that the language or when people even can say that, like the language can be so beautiful that it can sort of distract you from what's going on. Decisions of life and death, of what shall be and what shall not, beggar all question of right. In elections of these magnitudes are all lesser ones subsumed, moral, spiritual, natural. It makes no difference what men think of war, said the judge. War endures, as well ask men what they think of stone. Right, there's this kind of um, very uh, uh, high biblical quality to McCarthy's language and to the way that his mm -hmm. characters speak. Uh, and the judge is, you know, this embodiment of horrific violence. In fact, Harold Bloom uh, calls him a Gnostic archon, uh, <laughs> which I'm sure everyone out there knows exactly what I mean when mm -hmm. I say someone is a Gnostic archon. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, the, the idea is that he, he, he essentially like looks at the world and he sees like, oh, everything here is violence and war. And the way to exist in the world is to become the best at violence and war, right? To sort of yeah. lean into that. And Welsh says that what is sort of disturbing about Red Dead Redemption, um, you know, surprisingly, it's not actually surprising. He doesn't think it's surprising, but, uh, is, is that the player character, and I would say, you know, in many games, the player character is kind of forced into the judge position of being the person who can look at the world and be like, well, violence is the order of the day time to become the best at it because that's how these games are built. Uh, that's how they're designed. Those are the tools that they, they give you as a player. Um, and what is sort of so important, I think, for Welsh is is exactly what you're saying is sort of this reiteration of chapter seven that the even as the game uh, encourages us to take on the role of the judge, we can still uh, have the capacity to respond to these fictionalizations, to these pixels, to these representations um, with something like uh, uh, the moral uh, consideration or ethical feeling that we might have for, for a fellow human being. Mm -hmm. Yep. So. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, kind of to reiterate what we were saying a little bit, you know, on on one level, I like really I I agree with all of the concerns and like modes of inquiry and things that this book is thinking about. But when we get here to like the kind of close readings and big objects, you know, at the end of the book, I just none of this really resonates with me. Um, and as I've said a few times, I think that a little bit more work as far as systematizing what's going on here would have helped me out a lot for understanding it. Yeah, actually, and to sort of further unpack my like pointing, the reason I pointed out that he is echoing the judge there, right, is that the reason the judge is an effective character is that he is 
a Gnostic Archon, or rather, like, you get the, he is a character who has fully thought out his position in the world, and he knows how to enforce it. Mm -hmm. Um, and unfortunately, this, this book doesn't quite end with Welsh becoming, like, the anti-judge, right? Even though, uh, that, that kind of rhetoric is being, uh, consciously invoked at the end. Yeah. Hmm. Well, it's an interesting book. I'm glad that we read it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if you're interested in these issues in a broad sense, I think it's really helpful to read um, and kind of, you know, you can kind of land where you where you land. That's how books work. Uh, Michael, what do you think? Again, like I, I am glad that I read it. I think it's very interesting. I think it's going to be extremely useful uh, for my own work. Um, and I guess, I mean, the, the upshot of me having a lot of sort of like questions or quibbles with it is that means that there's now more stuff for me to write or at least think about. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is going right in my own book. So uh, in my kind of it's a very good clarifier. Mm-hmm. It's a good book for figuring out where you where you land on the thing. Um, our next book, we talked about this last time or no, we didn't talk about this last time. You and I have actually talked about what the next book will be before we yeah. uh, release the episode. Possibly the first uh, time it's ever happened. Exactly. Yeah. So our, our plan is to do, um, uh, our next book for January, 2021 will be, uh, Lisa Nakamura's Cybertypes, which is kind of a, uh, big pillar in, um, game studies and also kind of. I don't know, digital studies, new media studies uh, for understanding race. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we're going to do that. Um, we're very excited to do that. And uh, then we got some cool stuff coming up after that as well. Uh, Michael, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on twitter.com at Warren is dead. You can go to patreon.com slash range touch to support the show um, and uh, support all the other stuff we do. If you back us at $3 a month, you get access to our notes from the show um you can uh check all that out there's a there's a bunch of zizek stuff in this chapter we didn't talk about you can see what michael has to say about that um i purposely did not talk about it Mm -hmm. um but uh but there's that you can also check out our other shows uh like just king things where we're reading through the works of stephen king in publication order by the time you're hearing this our episode on the stand will have come out so it's three and a half hours of us talking about the stand and if you back us at five dollars a month on patreon you can get access to our big bonus episode uh where we're talking to uh kirk hamilton about the stand miniseries which is quite fun mm-hmm. um and it's also a very long episode as well if you're into that and you can also check out too much future and go to youtube.com slash range touch to see what we're up to over there our elsinore let's play will be ending soon and we'll probably have something else coming up mages and murder dads uh the show where we talk about the Baldur's Gate games and beyond uh that's coming back uh probably Woo. in january we got all kinds of stuff uh for you both right now and in the future all of it is made possible by Patreon. We are still part of the drive for 1025. Yes, drive for 1025. Uh, which is we are trying to get to 1,025 patrons. We're somewhere above the 400 mark right now, so we got plenty to go. And if you back us, uh, you know, a, a dollar a month helps out. It helps us get to our goal. And at 1025, we're going to do a big, massive, very cool project that people have been hankering for that's still secret. Mm-hmm. You can also join our Discord. There's a link in the description down below. 
I think that's it. If you listen to this on iTunes or any other rateable platform where you can rate the show, please give us five stars and write a little review. That helps us out a whole lot and helps uh, sequence us up the charts and get people checking it out. We think the show is pretty unique, and the listeners, I think, also think it's pretty unique, and we don't spend any money on advertising. So uh, all word of mouth, all ratings, all sharing helps. Please share the show with someone you think might enjoy it. Put it on your Facebook. Put it on your social media. Put it on your MySpace. Uh, put it as a uh, disguise it disguise a link to it as an mp3 mm-hmm. and uh, you know name it like some weird REMB side shared on LimeWire mm-hmm. in 2003 um, you know really help us out some like weird weird like uh, uh, non-existent Weird Al parody song exactly put it on uh, like your your DJ shout out mm-hmm. you know uh, on your remixes that you're doing Uh, so people know that you made it and they know about the show. Just do all the stuff that you can. uh, And we'll be back next month uh, talking about Lisa Nakamura's Cybertypes. Until next time, folks, remember, the social is predicated upon its exclusions. (laughs) 